a good Monday morning to you on this August 9th. Jesperson here with Hoyles and Brooks. This episode of Real Talk is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well, our title sponsors since day one. It's a whole new deal at Bitcoin Well these days. Now, a publicly traded company, the first publicly traded Bitcoin ATM company in the world. And there's going to be more announcements to come. They're soon going to be moving their offices, expanding their team. There's a whole bunch going on in the world of crypto. If you're looking to make sense of it, if you have some questions that that feel pretty basic, if you'd like to ask them to a real live human like we do here, all you need to do is check them out. You'll find Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We've got some great emails coming in already. Talk at RyanJesperson.com. We're, we're, we're talking chalk and awe this morning. Uh, out of the gates, I can't steal that. That's not mine. I saw that on Twitter the other day. There are uh, conversations going on after a, a member of the Legislative Assembly out of Red Deer, an MLA out of Red Deer, Alberta, took uh, one of his constituents to task over some chalk protests that have been going on, some sidewalk chalk. And so today we'll put this in front of you, I, I suppose, and, and we'll ask you know what you might be more more threatened by yourself. What do you think it might be if you're a government official or if you're the average Canadian? Would it be something like sidewalk chalk? Might it be something like bear spray? You know, here with this government, it seems to me the government advocating for bear spray for personal protection, but really triggered, like I said this morning, by sidewalk chalk. So we thought this might be something fun to get into. But we wanted to check it with somebody that's actually taken this seriously. We'll provide the backstory in just a second. But Michael Spratt is a lawyer. He's also a podcast host, by the way. And he's taken this story on because in past with protests, sidewalk chalk is actually factored in. Call it. Uh, do we call it the more gentle or the less permanent spray paint? Is that what it is? I mean, it's the favorite tool of kids every summer, whether it's hopscotch or drawings or learning to write their name or whatever else. Sidewalk chalk is what people have been going to. It's kind of fun. It's harmless. And really, it washes off. That's the big benefit. Just ask any parent what the biggest benefit is when it comes to kids' art supplies. It's the fact that it washes off. But voters and Canadians have been using sidewalk chalk maybe more frequently as of late. I'm not actually quite sure if this is something that might be coming more and more of a trend. But using sidewalk chalk to convey their displeasure, their disapproval with government policies and government steps. And we're seeing that in Alberta. We've seen it in Ontario. We see it across the country. You probably see it in your neighborhood. You could probably give us examples off the top of the head. Uh, The last time that you saw sidewalk chalk utilized and not always just for good and childish fun. Every once in a while, we use sidewalk chalk to send a message, don't we? Well, that's what they were doing outside MLA Jason Steffen's office down in Red Deer. And, and it led to a bit of a brouhaha, as a matter of fact. It, it led the MLA to reach out to one of his constituents. And 
well take kind of a take kind of a scolding tone with her letting her know that that, that the building outside his constituency office had been defaced defaced with chalk and that it was going to cost 84 dollars to have that sidewalk chalk removed he called it unfortunate which is kind of the cluck cluck word that elected officials and their spokespersons use it's unfortunate that the prime minister is ignoring alberta it's unfortunate that alberta's premier is dropping covid restrictions it's unfortunate that we're going to have to spend 84 dollars worth of taxpayer funds to clean up this sidewalk chalk you know politicians are really agitated really irritated when they find something to be unfortunate we had a little bit of fun with it let's get into the backstory here so sidewalk chalk goes up outside an mla's office a constituency office in red deer and here's how the exchange plays out we appreciate the albertan this was uh annie that put this out for us she said well here's the private message from my mla says apparently chalking a sidewalk is defacing property and you can get into the message here from jason Stephen. this is his original and official account the blue check market county says hi ann you know unfortunately there's been some defacing of the property you know the property manager had to have a third party contractor remove the chalk messages from the private sidewalk used by multiple businesses the cost for removal was 84 dollars. are you going to pay this bill or will alberta's taxpayers have to foot it for you oh boy so i saw this and i i tweeted out i I said you know big powerful political parties triggered by sidewalk chalk has to be my favorite storyline coming out of the alberta legislature you'll remember this wasn't just jason stefan out of red deer you'll remember the education minister adriana lagrange also out of red deer red deer what is it with you and sidewalk chalk what is it with sidewalk chalk in central alberta i'm starting to think that it might be a good time to set up a school supplies store in central alberta maybe sell just sidewalk chalk i think business might be booming but the united conservative party has had a couple of run-ins now with sidewalk chalk Adriana LaGrange in her office, a sign went up uh, suggesting to people that there could be fines, that it's serious business if sidewalk chalk goes up because you have to remove it with 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 pressure washers. And of course, that can cause damage. And we know a spokesperson for the education minister went on the record later and said, hey, that wasn't us. That wasn't us. That was our landlord. That wasn't us. This is the second sidewalk chalk story plaguing a central alberta mla in the last number of months i snickered at it how do you not and these are just some of the responses that you sent to me we don't have time to put up the 150 or so responses but these are some of them alberta peasant wondered well how come they can't quote learn to live with chalk a reference to dr dina hinshaw's most recent note that albertans will have to learn to live with COVID. this one from philip using one of his favorite drake memes when your wife is so mad says philip at the ucp she starts putting together memes on a saturday night and you can see here from drake everybody knows the one even if you're listening on the podcast you know the one i'm talking about in his big puffy coat where he's going oh no he's got his hand up 84 dollars of public money needlessly wasted on a racing sidewalk chalk and then the big drake smile the big oh yeah 1.3 billion on keystone xl 1.6 billion on accounting errors 3.5 million on the pointless allen inquiry hey 30 million dollars a year on the energy war room oh yeah how about this one from shauna 
When your government wants to ban chalk but allow pepper spray, you get a pretty strong indication of what action they wish to see. And there was this one from John Manning every day in Alberta. I should do sort of like a David Attenborough voice for this, but I don't know if I could muster it. Every day in Alberta, he says defenseless sidewalks are attacked by non-permanent chalk messages. But there's hope for the price of one large bottle of budget whiskey a day. Nice reference, pal. You can help return these heroic slabs of concrete to their natural conservative state. We had more like this one from celebrated and best-selling children's author Marty Chan. That feeling when you know a certain minister is going to ask the sidewalk be armed with pepper spray. That one's going to stick, Minister Matthew, isn't it? And Jill says, so the government feels they can deface a mountain and contaminate a water source, but we can't use chalk? Got it. This was one that jumped out at us because Angie uses the, the gif of the little gaffer out there, the, the, the little toddler out there with the sidewalk chalk working magic. Angie wonders if we may need a, a multi-million dollar third party review so we can understand the impact of the chalk incident. Angie just asking for a friend. Tammy suggested she wondered, is, is it awful that this just makes me want to go down there with more sidewalk chalk and do like entire bricks of sidewalk? She says, you know, eighty four dollars. Versus the billions this government has wasted. <laughs> war room. <laughs> war room. Honestly, says Tammy, this is ridiculous. Mary Ellen says, I work at a constituency office and we encourage people to chalk the sidewalk. We even provide the chalk. None of the neighboring businesses have complained, nor the property manager. None of the messages left have been offensive. Engaging with constituents, says Mary Ellen, is the job. And Darren Lund with maybe the tweet of the weekend and we fact check this to confirm it's true. And it is Darren, an educator. I'm disappointed, he tweets, but not surprised by the behavior of this MLA too lazy to clean a chalked sidewalk himself. I'm embarrassed to admit I was his high school teacher and student council staff advisor. Nice kid. But the laziness and entitlement didn't go away with age. That from Jason Stephens, former high school teacher, Darren Lund. And if you want to read that thread, a couple of people took some pretty big swipes at Lund. He went on to explain why he included that comment. Michael Spratt is co-host of the legal and political podcast, The Docket. He's a certified criminal lawyer, a partner at the law firm in Ottawa, Abigail Goldstein and Partners. He frequently appears as an expert witness before the House of Commons and the Senate. And he's the author at uh, CanadianLawyer.com, the author of a piece, Chalking on Sidewalks is Not a Crime. Michael, we're grateful that you've been able to make time for us this morning. Welcome to Real Talk. Thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. How did this chalking on sidewalks story get on your radar? It had nothing to do with what's going on in Alberta, did it? Yeah, no, the, the thing that I wrote about actually took place last year uh, based on three incidents here in Ottawa where the Ottawa police were detaining and threatening to arrest uh, individuals for writing messages in washable chalk. Um, one was an anti-police message. Um, you know, it was during the Black Lives Matter protest. One was written in front of uh, in front of the police station. And they actually detained these people and said that it, uh, it could be a criminal offense. It's mischief to do this. And of course, it's not. And that was a rather pro- high profile incident here in Ottawa. So high profile, in fact, that the mayor got involved and tweeted out that 
it's not a criminal offense. It's public property. And as long as they're not hateful or hateful messages or a criminal offense that he uh, approved of this sort of uh, freedom of expression. One of the things I know that a lot of people jumped onto in this story out of Alberta was the use of defacing the use of the word defacing the property by this MLA. What qualifies as something that might be defaced? What does defacing look like with a legal definition? What would a judge accept? Yeah, in the criminal code, there actually is no sort of defacing. Um, there's a charge of mischief, and that's interference with property that can uh, or, 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 you know, um, vandalism to property that can interfere with someone's lawful enjoyment. So, you know, if you were to spray graffiti on the side of someone's house, it uh, it impacts their property. It can affect their, the enjoyment of the property. And of course, there's a, there's a cost with respect to removing that. Um, you know, putting up uh, barriers in front of a business or, or something like that, that can actually interfere with how the public uses the property and uh, create some inconvenience and expense to the, to the owner of that property. That can be a criminal offense, usually a very minor criminal offense. But in the case of sidewalk chalk, there's no permanent damage. Uh, It doesn't interfere with anyone's use or enjoyment of the property. And importantly, in the context of messages or expression that relate to, you know, politics to important issues in the community, there is a countervailing charter rights uh, to freedom of expression and and freedom of political participation. And this is exactly what uh, this is, a a non-permanent form of expression in front of an elected official's office that, you know, doesn't interfere with anyone's uh, enjoyment of the property. If you don't like it, walk over it or dump a bit of water on it. Yeah, dump a bit of water on it. Wait for the next time it rains. That was the suggestion of some people that I saw on on Twitter as well. Does it matter, Michael, with regards to whether or not, you know, because some people are going to say, hey, politicians are powerful. You know, we had we had an MLA, former government minister down in Lethbridge. It was was discovered that she had been surveilled while she was a government minister. She had been surveilled by the Lethbridge police, tailed, followed them, taking notes. I mean, you know, people have reason, I think, to be aware of and even in some cases concerned about relationships between powerful private citizens, including politicians and law enforcement. If a politician, a powerful one, were to pull some strings and have somebody charged, what do you think a judge might say about a mischief charge relating to sidewalk chalk? Would it matter what had been written or what had been drawn? Well, I think the context and, and the content of that sort of communication on the sidewalk does matter. I mean, if there are hateful messages, if there's derogatory terms, if there's any threats, um, then uh, then yeah, there there could be consequences for that. Um, there are hate speech laws. There are laws against uh, you know uttering threats. And if it if it is a type of you know disgusting vile message that could interfere with how uh, someone used the property. Um, you know, and we're talking maybe vulgar words and things like that, then then you could get into an area where potentially there could be criminal charges. But look, I think any judge would laugh this out of court. I don't think it would ever get to trial. Um, if the police did lay charges, then, you know, hopefully we would have a crown attorney screen this out of court. Um, and, you know, I think that, that we have much more important things to be focusing on in our criminal courts than, than this sort of sidewalk chalk issue. And I expect that if a crown attorney did take it to trial, um, 
that would not be viewed uh, very positively by by the judge. I guess I don't even really need your legal opinion on this. I mean, I'm just speaking to you as a fellow Canadian. The fact that it's sidewalk chalk makes it almost comical, doesn't it? I, I have to stop myself from almost smirking as I'm talking to you about this. We're talking about children's art supplies. Exactly. And I mean, the, the I guess the, the medium is the message and the medium is sort of important, right? This is a non-permanent form of expression. If you're talking about, you know, um, using, uh, you know, animal blood in front of uh, in front of a, a slaughterhouse or something like that, or if you're talking about using, you know, paint that that is permanent, you know, then we start getting into areas where, you know, there could be um, some issue with with a mischief charge, you know, the permanence or, you know, biological contaminants, things like that um, might elevate the severity. But when you're dealing with children's sidewalk chalk, I mean, is it is it really this MLA's position that, you know, kids who play hopscotch businesses that, you know, write uh, write messages about their businesses, trying to draw customers into their establishment, that these individuals are all committing criminal offenses too? Or does the MLA simply think that laws apply to some and uh, not others? And, you know, that demarcation is based on whether the criticism of him or not. And I suspect that this is a touchy politician who is used to his position of power and doesn't like being challenged. Yeah. Can can you can you run us back to I mean, you write about this and I mentioned people can read your your piece in, in Canadian lawyer chalking on sidewalks is not a crime. But there were kind of there were like back to back incidents, weren't there? Or even back to back to back incidents in Ottawa, including uh, Justin. Is it Justin Peach, a University of Ottawa professor detained by police for writing something that seemed to me, I mean, a bold statement, but relatively benign? Yeah, I mean, Justin Pichet is a well-respected uh, professor at uh, the University of Ottawa. And following the, the first incident where a woman was detained and threatened by the police for writing, um, you know, sort of an, what the police would characterize as an anti-police message. She was calling for more police oversight. Um, there was a protest in front of the police station and on the public property in front of the police station, uh, Professor Pichet, you know, chalked on the sidewalk as well. Um, nothing hateful, you know, it was free speech uh, uh, on the sidewalk, certainly nothing that would attract police attention if he said it out loud. And he was detained and threatened. And there's now a, a note in the Ottawa police's file that this this happened. He was they gave him a warning. And of course, you can't really challenge that in court. They didn't lay charges. And then a short time after that, there was another incident where individuals um, were protesting in a public park. And not only did uh, the police threaten to arrest them, but the city brought in water trucks to pressure spray this off in the middle of the day at that taxpayer expense. Mm. And so we see actually these incidents are, are more common than you would like to believe. Um, you know, a, a couple of years ago, there was similar messages in chalk, non-permanent uh, writing in front of the Ontario legislature. Um, and those individuals were actually given provincial tickets um, and so, you know, this is a, a look, politicians, police, people in power don't like to be criticized. But one of the beauties of Canada is that you're allowed to engage in those criticisms, uh, especially if they are peaceful and uh, especially if they're through non-permanent measures like this. And so I think that, you know, this incident, the incidents in Ottawa, the incidents at the, the Ontario legislature, that really says more about uh, the people in power 
and how they feel about having their authority questioned than it does about, you know, any criminal act uh, on the part of, you know, these engaged citizens who are, you know, contributing to sort of the vibrancy of that discussion that, that we really want to encourage. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to give people a sense, I mean, the University of Ottawa or Ottawa University professor Justin Pichet had written Abolish Prisons on chalk. That's what was written. Uh, you wrote about the, these two women detained for writing on a public sidewalk in, in Ottawa. Messages like racism hurts everyone end police brutality and racism. See it. Stop it. Now, I can understand how a police officer may not love to see end police brutality written in chalk on a sidewalk. If they feel like they're misunderstood or they feel like they've never brutalized anyone or whatever the case may be. I know there can be a lot going on. But here, I mean, the idea, whole idea, we talk about freedom of speech. And I think what needs to be discussed here as well is what when citizens are within their rights. There was there was sort of the, the subtle implication from this MLA out of Red Deer that this had been on private property on a private sidewalk that was shared by other private businesses. Can you sort this out for us? I mean, if, if, if a politician or for that matter, if a podcast host uh, takes up residence, takes out a lease in a strip mall or anywhere else, where does the public property start or end when does the private property start and what are the implications yeah that's right there are there can be some complexity to even these simple issues like we know that if you rent a storefront you know you're renting it from someone else you're setting up business in that storefront um you know that is the business's place they can do what they that they want in that business and you know they can have rules within the bounds of the law with respect to what happens in their business um you own your house um but the shared public space the sidewalk um is a shared public space um you know it's city property now businesses use that sidewalk all the time. We see, you know, advertisements, we see sort of those like sandwich uh, shop billboards, we see, you know, things like that, um, that businesses put out there, and that's fine. Um, you know, we see people walking and using that public space. That's great as well. And so this isn't a space owned by the business. This has not been ceded by the public to that business or to this MLA who's not a business, but it represents people in the community. So this is public space. Um, you know, if someone were to trespass on your property in your home and write things, you know, that might be a different story that can flavor things. And it'd be a bit creepy to start with, which, you know, also flavors things, right? So context matters. And the context here is, you know, this isn't a, a protest uh, outside a, a private corporation on, on, private property. This is members of the public talking to an MLA who I should admit, I don't know, but I gather he may not be the most responsive to those sorts of people. I don't know if he would have let them into his office for a meeting. Yeah. And so through expression like this, um, they're doing what they can to get their point across on important messages. And that is um, look, politicians, that's part of the price you have to pay um, to have the privilege of serving in public office. Well, like, what's the point of a constituency office if not to be available to your constituents? Like, what is the point? That is the point of access. That is literally the door that remains open. Like, it's it's a metaphor. The office itself is a metaphor, 
right? And I mean, I suppose the chalk in front says a whole lot and the resistance or the pushback on the chalk is a lot as well. Like I said, Michael, we read some of the more, you know, more amusing replies to my tweet over the weekend before we said hello to you this morning. But there was one recurring theme, and that was it's blowing our mind that this is what he's responding to after refusing or failing to respond to so many messages on so many other fronts. You wrote in your piece, uh, not once, not twice, but thrice. Multiple Ottawa police officers detained and threatened to arrest people doing nothing wrong. The only inner the only inference is that the police acted the way they did because they did not like what was being written in chalk. You went on to say perhaps police services have too much money and time on their hands. You said if officers act this way over chalk, how must they react when they deal with people who challenge their authority? You went on to say in wrapping, there's only one solution to rot that runs this deep and was uncovered by mere chalk tear it all down and build something better i love what you wrote there it was uncovered by mere chalk the story here is not the chalk on the sidewalk it's what prompted people to leave the chalk art on the sidewalk and what prompted the elected official to respond to it in the way that he did the chalk really has nothing to do with it that's that's exactly right this incident is about the MLA, about his comportment, about how he interacts with his constituents. And I mean, look, there is a real danger here as well. We do have an emerging problem, um, you know, across the country in in Western democracies about about, you know, um, polarization of politics, about, you know, good people who get into politics, who, you know, others may disagree with their policy positions and then they're attacked through, you know, um, uh, misogynistic, homophobic slurs, that they are actually subject to people coming to their office and engaging in threatening and harassing behavior. And, you know, for this MLA to, to cry foul over this incident um, sets up sort of this like false equivalency where, you know, on the one hand, there are actually actions that we need to make sure that that we denounce and take seriously. This is not one of them. And it says a lot about him and it risks sort of um, demeaning or devaluing some of those other legitimate concerns that that people have have to put had, had to put up with. Michael, I appreciate you you taking our sort of like higher level or, or a little bit sort of bigger picture questions on this. But let, let me wrap with this. One more question. What I'm doing here really unapologetically is seeking free legal advice. But, it, <laughs> but, but if it were to be implied or inferred to someone like Anne who kicked this all off by posting that private message or any other private citizen that they were on the hook for a chalk cleanup in front of a constituency association office or in front of political parties office or in front of a medical clinic or in front of a, a, like I said, a podcast studio or anything else that they were on the hook for the cleanup costs, whether it was $84 or more or less than that, what should they tell the person that claims that they owe them the dough? Well, they should do exactly what was done here. They should document everything. They should take pictures of what they did. They should save the chalk so that if they, God forbid, they need to go to court, they can, you know, show that it wasn't permanent. They should keep those private messages and they should reach out to legal counsel. The beauty, and I'll, I'll let your listeners in on a secret. Criminal lawyers usually do a lot of work for free on cases like this. And so, you know, if someone like this came into my office you know, I would meet with them, I would talk them, talk with them. And, you know, there's usually no cost with that. So, 
you know, they should reach out to some professionals because there are criminal lawyers or civil liberties organizations uh, across the country that would come to someone um, who's in this position, come to their aid, because this is important speech. And, you know, our whole job is holding power to account. And we, we can see, you know, tangible, um, uh, maybe not permanent and washable uh, ways where, where we can hold them to account on these small issues. It's really important. And so there is help out there for people that, that you know, are engaged in this important um, act of, of public discourse and protest. Real Talkers, you can hear more from Michael Spratt on his legal and political podcast, The Docket. You can check out what he does, his day job at michaelspratt.com, the Ottawa criminal law firm. Do you you say Abergel? Is that how you say it, Michael? Ontario is Abergel. Abergel. You're close. Oh, that's what an Albertan way to pronounce Abergel. (laughs) Abergel Goldstein and Partners out of Ottawa. Michael Spratt. Thanks for this. We appreciate it. No problem. Anytime, man. Yeah, there you go. So not illegal, not defacing, not permanent, not on the hook, A-OK. Yep. Check, check, check. Like we would say with everything else, keep it decent. Absolutely. Right? No, no hate speech. Like, like hate speech doesn't hate speech doesn't matter if you spell it out in in black spray paint or pink sidewalk chalk or silly string. Hate speech is hate speech. That's a different conversation. Absolutely. That's not what we're talking about here. No. And I, I just really appreciated that the medium is the message. Yeah. Nice fact, Marshall McLuhan reference. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that it's chalk. Come on. And you know what? But but he's 100 percent right on that. In that, you know, a lot of this, especially with Adriana LaGrange in the previous uh, dust up on there's so many chalk puns. There are so many like Lawless as was said, I chalk it up to poor leadership. I know that a lot of people are, you know, sidewalk chalk gate that, you know, chalk gate. I don't know if it's a gate. It's not a gate. Aloha gate was a gate. When, when you have, you know, multiple elected officials. I saw somebody over the weekend that said, you know, for example, you know, Jason Kenny. Uh, blame me you know there's an election coming because now everyone's taking swipes at each other right you know patty hyduth federal health minister taking swipes at alberta alberta's health minister tyler shandro taking swipes back at her we talked about that on friday and you see all this coming jason kenny saying that justin trudeau is essentially the liberals fault when it came to COVID 19 they didn't lock down international borders when everything was happening and, and this was reported back by alberta mlas that were down in arizona and in california and in mexico and in hawaii they were able to report back that the international airports had not been locked down they knew that because they were there so the sidewalk chalk started coming in and and in particular with education messages around adriana lagrange which of course you picture the schoolyard art right you picture the hopscotch grid and everything else and then now I think people are, are, are using it because, A, it is non-permanent. B, by the way, some of the artistry that we're seeing from people in political. I'm not sure that I've ever seen political protests so beautiful. I've never seen furious anger, to quote, to, to quote my man Samuel L. Jackson uh, in Pulp Fiction, and furious anger. I've never seen furious anger look so beautiful than it has with the sidewalk chalk. But you have to ask now. I mean, people could rightfully... Uh, chime in and, and get in touch with us on the show and someone will hit me up on Twitter and say, is this seriously the most important issue right now? This is this is your Monday morning leadoff. Is somebody already chiming in on us? Well, Donovan uh, Ekstrom yeah. fr- on Twitter uh, used the uh, the handle 
uh, Real Talk RJ, or sorry, the hashtag. And it says, it's gotten to the point that we need lawyers to weigh in on using chalk on sidewalks. Well, you know why, though? Love this province. <laughs> you know why? And you know why we wanted to get Michael in to talk about it? It's because I want people to know right away and right now, unequivocally, yeah. without question, what your rights are. What the reality is, when are you out of line, when are you within your rights, and what is perfectly fine, right? And to me, it says a lot that the premise here is, I mean, you even look at the subtle wording, like a a third party had to come in Mm -hmm. and clean up the chalk off the private sidewalk used by other private businesses. Buddy, this is a storefront constituency association office. It's not practical to suggest it should be open 24 hours a day. But in theory, you know, someone's going to say, what, Ryan, politicians can't have time with their families, can't have time. That's not what I'm talking about. You are here to serve the public. And politicians have forgotten about that. And if members in your riding, if people in your riding are showing up to your constituency association and leaving chalk drawings all over the place, because, you know, one way to interrupt it and stop it is to walk outside and start talking to them. That's one way to stop the chalk. Another way is stop the chalk. That might be the that might be the follow up hashtag. That might be the one that they take. We should trademark. But that. instead, he's, you know, sitting behind his phone typing a DM, you know, instead of getting outside and actually talking to the people. Yeah. And so here, you know, it's it, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that somebody had to deface the building and a third party had to come clean it up, had to clean up the defaced building from the private property. Some people have lost the plot and they've lost their perspective and they've forgotten exactly why they're there. Hawes wonders if crocodile tears are effective as a cleaner. (laughs) Fair enough. Linda Ray says the fragility is overwhelming. Donna suggests we send a squirt bottle. Kimberly says, you know, if we actually focused on the environment, we might have enough rain for it to wash away on its own. A bunch of audience members are chiming in on this report that CTV filed over the weekend about Dr. Joe Vipond and his political donations. I thought the story was better covered a week ago when we did it. But maybe the team at the CTV assignment desk is running out of ideas. And I appreciate that they watch Real Talk. But if you want to see what Dr. Joe had to say about that, uh, I thought he, he he was great on our show last week. That was last Tuesday. Was it last Monday, last Tuesday, something like that, early last week? And uh, and Joe basically said to us, you know, you've got the premier's staffers coming out. This is one of the doctors that's been organizing these protests in Calgary, Red Deer and Edmonton. They're still going, by the way. They're going again today. These are, these are interesting ones that you don't ignore. I was listening to The Strategist. I tell you, I love that podcast. Stephen Carter was talking about that, former chief of staff to Allison Redford. And, and Stephen was shining some light on the power of protest. And he said, it's fascinating to pick the brains or, or to be around political leaders when protest is going on. He says he's seen premiers, he's seen ministers and, and high level politicians look outside onto legislature grounds and, and they'll see 10,000 people out there and they go, eh, like who cares? No big deal. Doesn't matter. And then they'll see sustained protest of, of, of maybe a few hundred people and it'll raise their eyebrows like this is cause for concern, Right. It's interesting. It's not always necessarily maybe the biggest or the loudest protest that might concern the politicians the most or send the strongest messages. This one sustained over the course of a number of days. Uh, Dr. Joe with us last Thursday. Thanks for that, Sarah. So uh, if you want to hear that interview, you can. Joe, ba- Joe basically said to us, uh, 
you know, I, I said, how do you respond? You can tell I don't think he loved the question. Um, but I, I'm going to have we've got him on the show. The premier's high level staff are coming at him, you know, posting, you know, publicly available uh, political contribution receipts. We see these all the time. People come at us. Some of our advertisers have donated to conservative parties. Why are you doing business with them? People will say to us, why are we boycotting these businesses? Because people donate to a certain political party, as is within their right. It's called de- it's called democracy. Yeah, that's part of how this thing works. There are community members here that have donated to you know this political party and community members that have donated to that. And then bless your hearts, some of you have donated to those other political parties over there. It's all part of the process. It's all part of your rights as a citizen. And so you've got these pretty prominent people coming at this physician based on his activism. And so I asked him about it. And I know that some audience members were like, it's, you know, it's unfortunate that Dr. Joe should have to answer these types of questions. But I appreciated that he did. I wanted to know, how do you feel about the fact that you're being dragged like this? And that the implication is, is that this is nothing more essentially than a partisan exercise, these protests. And if I can paraphrase what he told us on Thursday, and you can find it in our audio vault by way of our podcast archives or, of course, on YouTube as well. He basically said to sum it up, I said, what do you, what do you say to accusations that you're an NDP shill? <laughs> and he was pretty straightforward. He says, doesn't make me a shill if I'm donating to them. It makes me a shill if they're giving me money. Right. It goes the other way around. Isn't that isn't that kind of the way it goes? It's a pretty straightforward retort. Let us know what you think about this story. I mean, I mean, I know a lot of you are chiming in from the city of Red Deer where all of this is going on. Uh, but of course, this is bigger picture. This is bigger picture like we saw. I mean, you know, Michael's talking to us out of Ottawa where this has been a big issue with the Ottawa police really has nothing to do with provincial politics in Alberta. But the premise is the same. The power of who would have, who would have thought? I mean, like I'm sitting here and, and, and don't worry, guys, I will be careful with this. I know I keep pulling it out and I'm probably making people nervous, but I just both of these were in our home. I can't line up. This is like trying to read in a mirror holding these up to the camera. But both of these are in our home. We've got the T-Rex effects Crayola sidewalk chalk, the washable sidewalk chalk, which, by, by the way, I've heard that washable sidewalk chalk is a little bit different. than There's different types of washable. I saw some people on the live chat, like some of it may require a little bit more scrubbing than others. So you might want to be careful. You so know. the the fee will be like $100 instead of 84 It might be 84 times two. They might have to send two third, third parties party. out there to, you know, $84. I get sidewalk chalk removal is what I need to get into. <laughs> But this comes down to, I mean, so we've, we've got the, you know, the medium, the medium is the message. And, and then you've got this, which is like, what's mightier, the pen or the sword? Uh, because really all we've been talking about in Alberta, it seems, over the past couple of weeks is pepper spray, in my case, bear spray or sidewalk chalk. Now, what are we not talking about? Probably all the things that we need to. Uh, I can't I can't imagine that the government is really sorry about this. I'm, I'm sure that the MLA out of Red Deer has some egg on his face over this and i'm sure people you know his colleagues will probably say it's unfortunate that we had to have this other distraction now people are going to be poking fun at us but really the the message that i will send to you as engaged citizens is that we need to keep our eyes on the prize and keep a closer eye on some of the other things that are going on that really have nothing to do with pithy and foundationless threats 
over sidewalk chalk outside constituency associations. Always curious to know what you're thinking. You can, of course, use our hashtag RealTalkRJ. You know that that's powered by the team at Park Power. And I appreciate their note the other day. Chris is the CEO over at Park Power was in touch with us. You remember this? And he wrote it in as like a frugal Friday note. But he said a lot of people are going to be getting a pretty rude awakening when their power bills arrive. It's because everybody's been running fans and air conditioners. And we know all about that. I haven't opened the envelope yet for mine. I don't know what the bill's going to look like. I'm ignoring it. That's sort of one of my character traits. If you know that pain is coming, (laughs) ignore it for as long as you can. Well, he said that, you know, there's these variable rate or regulated rate options. And and he said this is a great time for consumers, real talkers, to consider protecting yourselves from price volatility by switching to a fixed rate offering. And so at parkpower.ca, you can sign up for a flexible fixed rate for electricity on a one or a three-year term. Get the peace of mind knowing you're never locked in. You can switch rates or cancel any time. And of course, the promo code 2021-REALTALK saves you $70 off your first bill. We're also so grateful, of course, to be partnering with the team at Jet Set Parking. You know, you can fly nonstop right now from Edmonton to San Diego. You can book with Swoop. The flights start October 31st non-stop from Edmonton to San Diego starting October 31st. Now, when you're on your way to Edmonton's International Airport, regardless of your destination, consider self-parking at Jet Set Parking Edmonton. You're not going to get any closer to the to the terminal for the price you're going to pay. You can book online at jetsetparking.com and I'm, I'm going to be screaming this from the rooftops. I'm going to be tweeting this and telling everybody I know at jetsetparking.com if you use the promo code REALTALK, you can park for $5 a day. The promo code REALTALK, $5 a day parking at the airport at jetsetparking.com. They're locally owned, and I guarantee you'll love them. $5 a day to park at the airport. Five bucks, five bucks, five, five bucks. bucks. Five bucks, five bucks, five bucks. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you didn't quite realize how much you were paying for parking, and then you come back, and then you put your... You put the card in that you've you've, you've you've traveled all over and you've kept the card wedged into your passport or your wallet to make sure you don't lose it. And you put it into the machine at the airport and all of a sudden the number comes up and you go, oh, what could have flown first class for that? See more. It's more that, you know, you always have to ask your friends or family to drive you to the airport and they're like, oh, really? Man. Again, again. So I think that five bucks is, you know, a relationship saver. Yeah. I agree. Save your relationships for five bucks a day. Mm-hmm. There's two things. I mean, the, the airport drop off's a little bit different. I don't want. I don't know if I want to. Uh, I don't want to come down on people that request rides and pickups from the airports because that's actually a pretty special thing, right? You, My folks love it. Yeah, love it. Like yeah. they want to do it. I was about to compare it to something else. I don't know how you feel, Sam, as a pickup truck owner. You know what I'm about to say. Probably, I was about to compare airport pickups and drop offs to moving you called it to help with moving and actually i'm going to check myself because i don't think those are the same thing i I think airport pickups and drop-offs are uh, as long as it's not like you know you live in chilliwack and you're asking for a ride to the vancouver international which is a bit more of a hike or you live in lethbridge and you want to ride to you know the edmonton international airport that's a bit of a trip Mm. but uh the airport pickup and drop-off can be a really special moment i don't see a lot of special moments people helping other people move yeah, I would agree with that. I've I've I have done many an airport drop off and many a help a guy move. And the thing about the airport drop off is it's like 
all you have to do is drive. Like you just you pick them up. You might help them with their suitcases. It's it's not. You said it's not that like in a really like a Matthew McConaughey. You were like, all you gotta do is drive. <laughs> that in, was my, in my Lincoln that I pick everybody up from the yeah, airport that's, in. That's yeah, right. when you help someone move, there's physical labor involved. Airport yeah. drop ups are. You drive your buddy to the airport and you give him a big hug and wish them a good flight. It's what is the great uh, moment? When do you cross the bridge? Uh, when do you reach the point in life when it is no longer acceptable to ask people to help you move? Is it an age thing? Is it an income thing? That's is, a really good question. I mean, I used movers for the first time, the most recent time I moved. And I don't know if I'll ever go. I felt like it was a really good investment. And yeah, it was like, it was also a gift to my family and friends. So I didn't have to be like, can you, can you come? The other thing is, is you have to make sure because the worst thing is helping someone move when they have, when they're not ready yet and you show up and the stuff isn't packed yet. And you're kind of like standing around waiting for things. It's just like, dude, I am donating my time. I love you. Love you. Yeah. But come on. I think it's, I think it's, I think it, th- there are income considerations. Don't want to be insensitive. Obviously yeah. for some people it's like, Hey man, can you help me move? I'm a little hard up right now. Or you're moving because it, like different story absolve yourself of any negative feeling of that. And also, of course, this is a perfect time for me to remind people about Alta moving in storage, which I will in just a second. But I think that the, like the age thing comes into play. I can't even imagine like Nicole on our live chat says moving's the worst. We have a five ton truck. See, Nicole's in tough, like a five ton. This is like one of those cube vans. She says, everybody asks me, I don't want to help anybody move ever again. I don't want your free beer. You're like, I'll give beer and pizza. Beer and pizza. Everybody's like, man, that's 80 bucks. It's $84. Everybody <laughs> knows that's $84. You know, that's like, I, I, I could go out and make $84 just by cleaning the sidewalk in front of Red Deer MLA's offices. But now nobody wants the free beer for like seven hours of hard labor. You know, I'm even thinking if we chalk in at minimum wage, you owe me $105. I'm not trying to brag that I did that math really quickly all by myself right there on the fly. But if you're going to pay everybody their minimum wage, as you should, and this is heavy labor, this is no joke. Helping people move. I think it's got to be more than free beer and pizza. Heidi, meantime, says, I love doing airport drop off and pick up. She says, I get a little bit of that residual vacation excitement, which is true. Although I'm always annoyed too. I'm always annoyed when I walk into an airport Carrie, my wife, would tell you that this is true. I have, like, for someone that comes across, I I hope I come across as positive. I hope that when people meet me, they're like, he's a real positive guy. He's got some real pep in his step. I do have sort of this kind of negative stream that just runs. It just trickles. It just runs through. But it'll it'll, it'll start to swell a little bit. Like in springtime, with the glacier melt and the spring melt, the the stream, the negative stream starts to swell a little bit when I walk into an airport and I see all these people that are getting to go to all these great places. They're checking in their bags to go to Maui or Kauai or, you know, they're on their way down to Scottsdale, Arizona. And what am I doing? I'm just dropping somebody off, going back to my, I'm going to go back and probably weed the garden, take the trash out go through my junk mail folder so sometimes i just stay outside drop them off the curbside hug we'll see i don't have to i don't have i don't have the emotional fortitude to walk in there and see everybody going on these fabulous vacations that i don't get to share other people 
You know, I mean, these are, this is the problem here is that real talkers are just too positive. And so sometimes it really cramps our style when I'm trying to have a negative, cynical Monday morning type conversation. Like everybody's right. Mark in Utah. I don't mind doing the airport drop off. I don't mind picking people up. Jeez. Someone's got a case of the Monday. Somebody's got a case of the Monday. Yeah. Um, so there's uh, there, there are a lot of thoughts on chalk. You know, the, the, a lot of people are, are sort of here suggesting that that. Maybe there's more room for further activism. I would suggest that as, you know, we approach a municipal and federal election this fall, we're saying that with such authority. Yesterday was a big day for a friend of mine. I've been telling you, not in a good way. And I think that he's left some money on the table. I was telling you that August 8th was the day that one of my pals was absolutely convinced the election was going to be called. Federal election was going to be called. It came and went. Uh, but, but a lot of people are expecting that's going to be soon. More and more people seem to be going to sidewalk chalk. Maybe sidewalk chalks are the new lawn signs. Maybe that's it. So we thought that that was a good one. But we also want to remind you that coming up here on the show in about 40 minutes, uh, Dr. Michelle Morato is going to join us, uh, associate professor of sociology out of the University of Alberta. We're going to be talking about uh, nurses' wages. And I think that that's going to be a good conversation. Of course, this is another one of those uh, what do you want to call them? Mile markers that people are looking to over the next while, uh, including coming up on August 11th, just a couple of days from now. If you're in Western Canada, you'll no doubt be seeing this as part of the news coverage that you'll interact with on August 11th, expecting a, a pretty significant and high profile nurses protest in the province of Alberta. So we wanted to get into uh, as part of this show and our editorial stance you know, one of the things that's important to us is that we're bringing reputable guests to the show for data driven analysis. You remember when we talked to uh, Dr. Lenora Saxinger on Friday's show, and I sure appreciated her availability. I mean, that was her mandate. That was what she was to deliver with us. There's a lot of opinion. Uh, you're going to get a lot of opinion from me and from hosts and from our live chat and from the emails that we receive. And from our guests as well. I mean, that makes for entertaining interviews. But we want to make sure that you know what's going on, that you're armed with information uh, that, 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 you know, we've, we've had a chance to go through that you might call it peer reviewed in the sense that we're going to bring on experts that are going to put um, premises and thoughts and facts and data in front of us so that when you participate in conversations around your dinner tables or around your soccer fields or around the neighborhood or wherever you are, I was about to say in your chat rooms, but that sounded like 1996. I'm not sure that anybody's really doing chat rooms. Are chat rooms a thing anymore? Not really. Reddit? Is Reddit like a chat room in a way? I guess Reddit is just like a giant global chat room. Reddit, I have a weird relationship with Reddit. In How that, so? Like, well, I, like I'm not I'm not a Redditor. I'm not somebody that like, you know, like logs into Reddit and just browses endlessly. Because like, there's, there's hardcore Redditors. There yeah. are, exactly. No, I, I use it as like, it's a really good source for like unbelievably specific information. Like I, I follow, uh, I follow the reddit page for the page for the model of car that i have because it like gives me insight on when there's like software updates oh for right it. So, like, you right, know what right. i mean or, or like certain camera forums i follow on reddit because it's it's so in the weeds see but, it doesn't occur to me yeah. reddit to me I, I i almost wonder if it's you know maybe i feel sometimes like um it, it's a good thing that i don't know as much about uh other avenues that would probably suck all of my time and i i can see myself being the type of person that would go down into these it's, what's what's the reddit equivalent of it, a rabbit it, hole a subreddit a hole. yeah a rabbit, a rabbit hole. hole a reddit hole maybe a reddit hole <laughs> well, we'll, we'll call it that all kinds of stuff 
Um, keep working, workshopping it, boys. Yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna keep working on this. In the meantime, uh, this is a great time for us to take a look at our question of the week. We appreciate this. Was great to see more than a thousand people chiming in on this one, and I'm not surprised. Uh, our question of the week every week presented by our research and strategy partners, our official partners at Y Station, and this last week, I mean, their entire mandate. Uh, when it comes to Chris Anderson, their chief strategist and his whole team, we check in typically on a Wednesday with one another and we we put our finger on the pulse of the country and we take a look at what real talkers are talking about the most and some of the issues that are impacting us or some of the issues that could impact us. And we want to read the room. We want to get a sense of where you're at. And so this past week, we thought it made perfect sense. As a matter of fact, it was pretty obvious that we should be asking you how you feel about the Alberta government essentially dropping all of its COVID restrictions effective. I mean, by the end of August, uh, things are going to look a whole lot different. I'm grateful that more than a thousand of you completed your surveys. You know, all the data. If you're one of our Patreon supporters, we thank you so much for that. The details on how to do that. Uh, the top of the page at RyanJesperson.com. Our Patreon supporters receive the top line report. This week's is 20 pages of curated data presented uh, in a really attractive fashion. Helps you understand exactly where Real talkers is at. So he- here it is. I mean, essentially, here are the key findings. Here are some of the notes from the team at Y Station. We asked you how you felt about the government of Alberta relaxing its COVID restrictions. Here's one. 91% of respondents, there were 1,014 surveys completed, 91% of respondents believe that at least some of these changes are happening too fast. 65% of respondents, two out of three, felt all of the changes are happening too fast. Just 3% of real talkers, so about 30 of you that responded, 3% believed that not requiring isolation after a positive covid test is reasonable 95 percent of respondents believe it to be reckless 87 percent of real talkers believe that requiring proof of vaccination at a major event like a concert or an nhl game would boost vaccine uptake i guarantee it would 87 percent of you believe that And 90%, look at these numbers, like 3%, 90%, 87%. I mean, these are huge or minuscule numbers. Sam, that last one there, let's take a look at that one again. 90% of real talkers do not trust government to reintroduce restrictions if cases rise to a previous peak. And the obvious observation to be made here is that people aren't going to know if cases are rising to previous peaks because that dot that data is not being made available. So Chris sends us notes on key findings. And on this one, he says, well, for starters, people are really mad. He says, this is the maddest. And we're going to read you some of the comments that you left. He says, this is the maddest that we've seen respondents since Aloha gate. Aloha gate to give you a sense of how mad people were. That was the, our, the, our highest engagement of, of a Y station question of the week of all time. More than 4000 people showed up to answer that question that week. I mean, we were slammed. I remember the team at Y station was like, oh, geez, because they've got to go through it. All right. We just sit here sipping our daiquiris like we don't. We just we're, we're lucky enough that they do incredible work here. You don't want me doing statistical data. They do it on a Sunday too, so they like yeah. they wait for all of the yeah. results to come in, and then they tabulate. So they're working on a Sunday to boot. Can you imagine having four thousand surveys to Yeesh. go through? One out of two real talkers. So one in two. 
are extremely concerned about the Delta variant. This is what I wanted to talk to you guys about, because I think this is interesting. Eleven uh, percent told us that the pandemic has been such a roller coaster. They don't know whether or not to be concerned about it. I, I, I understand that. I understand that. Like the Delta variant. Right. We asked Lenora about this. Dr. Saxinger on Friday. And for that matter, Dr. Vipon the day before. Uh, but, you know, you sort of like how much do people actually know about it? How should we actually because if because we can get caught up in, in sensation and we can get caught up in fear. And I'm not dismissing concerns as sensation or fear. But a lot of times we want to hear from the experts so we know what we should actually be concerned about and what might be all right. People want to see vaccine passports and want to be able to deny access to events. Eighty seven percent are in favor of that. And normal Everyday activities like accessing public services, 85% are in favor of requiring vaccine passports as a way to incentivize vaccination rates. That would include things like public transit. I saw that Manitoba is using QR codes now, which I thought was a really simple. I mean, you know, people are not talking about folded up pieces of paper that folks have to carry along with their paper healthcare cards in their back pockets, Right. I was about yeah. to go there and be like, yeah, just put right next to <laughs> your falling apart health care card. Falling apart yeah. health care card. Ugh. The number one thing that I, I, I remember, I, I got to remember three numbers. Well, four. My wife's phone number I should remember for sure. Uh, my social insurance number, my driver's license number, and my health care number. And those are the ones where, you know, knock on wood, if I were to hit my head and forget everything else, I think I could still remember those. You remember all those? I got them all. I could rattle them off right now. I won't do it for obvious reasons. But yeah, 100 percent. I do I can't, not I'm, I'm, know I'm, any of those. But I'm a guy where I on any given day, I'm not quite sure where my wallet is. Oh, fair enough. Okay. You know, and like I'm not like let alone a healthcare card. People are like, you know, do you know, hey, we have a rewards card where if you buy 10 coffees, you get one free. I'm like, hang on to your rewards card. I don't have a rewards card. How about if I come in here 10 times, you recognize me and every once in a while, give me a free coffee. Is that cool? And I'll keep coming here. How about that? Your stamp cards. Are you kidding me? People carrying these around George Costanza with back problems because his wallet's like eight inches thick. Another interesting point that was made frequently by real talkers in the open ended comments. So, you know, if you sign up for our uh, question of the week, this one, by the way, is about the Olympics. I'll tee it up in just a second. But there, a lot of it is multiple choice. We want it to be quick for you to go through typically two and a half, three minutes to answer the entire thing. Uh, but then we leave some open space, a blinking cursor, if you will. So you can tell us how you feel. The idea that, that appeared very frequently was outreach to rural and low vaccination areas needs to be better resourced and more aggressive. There's so, so there's an idea around sort of a no expenses spared type attitude. Like, let's take the steps that we need to take. I was on the QE2 just yesterday evening and I saw a vaccination bus. Yeah, they've been traveling around yeah, the province, which actually, I think is great. Wyatt was with me. Uh, he's six. He's just turned six. Our little guy. And he was like, he was so he was really interested because it's all, you know, the graphics, it's wrapped. The bus is wrapped in kind of a compelling fashion. He was what, what wanted to know what's that all about? I told him, well, that's people that are going to get their shot. Right? Those are the people going to get they're going to get their covid shot. So 65 percent believe the stuff's happening too fast. So that's that's one of the things that I thought was pretty interesting. Now, when we asked you looking at specific changes to public health measures, because some of them are, are far from controversial. Some of them, you could argue, it's got to happen at some point. And then some of them are the real eyebrow raisers, I think. Right. Not releasing the data, not testing anymore, not isolating after positive cases. I think these are big ones. No <laughs> mass. The one that transit. just 
boggles my mind. The not isolating one to me is, you know, I heard someone saying, well, what happens when people have chicken pox? They isolate. Why won't this be the same? I'm sitting there thinking, well, uh, chicken pox, number one, I don't see a lot of people claiming that chicken pox is not a thing or doesn't exist. Number two, for the most part, people are immunized against chicken pox. They're vaccinated. They're vaccinated against, against chicken pox. Right. And then when people, I mean, the thing that chicken pox always makes me think about is I got shingles. Yes, I got shingles when I was not very old. Like I was not in my 50s or 60s or 70s or 80s. I got them when, anyways, and that is, that is what it looks like when we're talking about long COVID. It's something that can, that resides in your system. Once you've had chicken pox, it resides in your system and it can flare up again. That's what shingles is. Do you guys remember chicken pox? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. Itchy. Yeah. I was in the Medicine Hat Lodge on a family vacation. (laughs) Lying in bed. I think it was the Medicine Hat Lodge. That's the one with the water slide, right? I mean, water slide circa early 1980s. <laughs> I'm not sure. Is there still a Medicine Hat Lodge? Do they still have a water slide? I don't know. Maybe we'll reach out to them, see if they want to buy some spots yeah, on the show. <laughs> but for those of you that answered whether or not you thought that the changes were reckless, 95% of you believed that the no longer requiring isolation was was what concerned you the most, like a level of recklessness. 95, 91% was applying minimal, if any, restrictions to K-12 schools. People are really concerned. Like we said earlier, think of the children. Think of the children. This, for a lot of people, is about the kids. It's about going back to school in three weeks. Can you believe that, by the way? No. An equal number, 91% believe that only making COVID-19 testing available to make patient care decisions is reckless. Closing testing centers uh, irked 89% of you described as reckless. The, the least area, the area of least concern was lifting provincial masking mandates with some masking required in acute care and continuing care settings. And I can see that. I can understand why some people might feel that way. I can understand it. I mean, whether we like it or not, we are very much influenced by our neighbors to the south. Yeah. So with the CDC in the states, you know, removing the mask mandate it you know that that trickles upwards and we we know, we know that's in the you're uh, one of your favorite words it's in the zeitgeist yeah and so but now when we look at what the cdc is doing they have now reversed course and when you were talking about like how do i feel about the delta variant i i just really appreciated a lot of our guests saying science changes and it should change and it should evolve we shouldn't be thinking that it's just you know it's set in stone this thing we're we're still getting to know it. Sure. Yeah. And, and and people feel differently. Real talk is that people feel differently. A lot of people based on whether or not they're vaccinated or based on where they are. For example, if you're outside or not. Right. I'm walking with my family yesterday. We had a, a beautiful walk along the Bow River down in Calgary. So good to be home back in Calgary. A bald eagle, by the way. Can I just tell you like quick, real quick story time? My dad's like, we're walking. My dad's like, there's a bald eagle down here. So we always see it with this bald eagle. I'm like, really? That's pretty sweet. And we're walking all of a sudden this crash. It sounds like it sounds like somebody dropped a suitcase from the top of a tree. It just like started (laughs) crashing down. And all of a sudden this magnificent bald eagle, magnificent, takes off from literally, I'm going to say 75 feet from us. Like right there. I mean, so close. If I would have had my 22, I could. No, I'm just. And and it's <laughs> Hoyles. That was just for you. So close. And this thing just does like, eh, like I can't do the actual bald eagle noise. No, no, but do it, it again. Do oh, it again. Yeah. <laughs> I used to be able to do it. It was like it was kind of like the. Uh, but uh, unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. There's nothing cooler than a bald eagle. 
the point is we're walking down by the river and you know my parents have been hardcore with regards to following the rules like you know we, we i drove down sort of mid last year to see them and, and we all wore masks and we hung out on their driveway for a few minutes type idea yeah. right that's the way it is i'm not expecting a pat on the back for my parents they don't expect a pat on the bat everybody's been doing the same thing a lot most people have been doing the same thing to get us out of here there's actually a great email coming up in positive reflections about that but we saw a couple people. I saw a couple of people walking. We're talking the great outdoors. Lots of park space. Nobody's running into anybody. We barely saw anyone down there. And two people wearing their masks as they walked outside. Totally fine. That's their deal. That's what's making them comfortable. Maybe one of them has the sniffles. Who knows? They're wearing their mask. None of us are wearing our masks. And I would say this is a family collectively that's been taking the restrictions pretty darn seriously so different people are at different levels with regards to where they are on masks now i guarantee you if my parents were to go visit you know the doctor or to go grocery shopping or whatever they they would have their masks on and that's their choice and there would be people that would not have their masks on in those grocery stores and that would be fine too Mm. quite frankly i've been into grocery stores lately not wearing a mask i'm not going to lie to you about that i'm double vaccinated i feel pretty good about it Some people may take an issue with that. That's fine. I mean, I think we really need to get to a point where we can start having reasoned conversations, respecting other people's perspectives on where they're at with masks. Doesn't bother me one bit if you want to wear a mask. Doesn't bother me one bit. Why would it? But I can understand why some people are more okay with lifting province-wide mask mandates. Not to say the Delta variant's not a thing. Not to say we're out of the woods. But they're more okay with that than they are not isolating people with positive COVID cases. Right. But I think in my mind, when I'm talking about masks, I'm talking about what has the science shown? The science has shown that when you're indoors for a prolonged period of time, it's important. And in close proximity, it's important to wear a mask. So that's what I'm talking about masks. And with that idea, if we lift masking, no pun intended, then that actually creates the 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 conditions to have the transfer of the more contagious sure. um, and, and, and Delta I, variant. I don't disagree with you. And on the flip side and on the flip side, there's got to be the understanding that at some point society is going to move on and oh. vaccination rates are up and case counts are down. We think, although they're rising again in Alberta. Yeah. Right. Who knows? But at some point, these are these are good conversations. What you and I are doing right now are the exact same kinds of conversations people are going to be having over their fences in the backyards. Right. Or or with their friends on the phone. When it came to how people believe that the government could boost vaccination rates, like we showed you earlier, 87 percent believe requiring proof at events like concerts or NHL games would boost it. Eighty two percent believe that restaurants and public services. We told you that thirty nine percent believe that additional marketing campaigns would work. See, I'm, I'm with that. I'm not surprised. I actually think that number's a little high. 39% think that additional marketing would work. Maybe I shouldn't say this because, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist of consumer behavior, but I figure if you haven't, if the marketing campaigns haven't swayed you by now, I don't think you're swayable in that sense. I totally agree Right? With you. Even talking to friends of mine, I told you I've got a couple of pals that are not vaccinated yet. I know what's going to move the needle with them. No, again, no pun intended. <laughs> Look at us just coming up with all this, bangin this bangin golden a- material today. I, can, I know what it is. It's the fact that they're not going to be able to travel. And so they'll get vaccinated so they can travel. Well, you might say, well, that's very selfish. I would say I agree with you. Some of you believe that 6% of you believe that increasing the prizing and the length of the lotto vax, the current vaccine lottery is the solution. 
52% of respondents believe that we should do nothing and rely on herd immunity. 2%, which is pretty interesting. When it comes to how you feel about the Delta variant, 52% of real talkers are extremely concerned. 27% are concerned but believe that they can keep themselves and their loved ones safe. And like we mentioned, the 11%, after, after 17 months of the pandemic, this was the option we gave you. It's difficult to know how worried I should be. That was 11 percent of you two percent said that you believe it to be overblown so this is some really interesting insight from real talkers and 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 we appreciate you chiming in we wanted to know what you believe the motivation was for dropping these public health restrictions i mean that's one of the really interesting questions that that i think is what's behind this why was it important that alberta be first and why now right why just before school why before kids are vaccinated why with the delta variant why now one of you said it's economic. It's expensive to continue to publicly fund testing and contact tracing. It's expensive for businesses to have people isolating, and it's expensive for schools to hire substitutes. Another one said it's politics. Premier Kenny is trying to regain the support of people who believe the pandemic to be a hoax, who believe their rights have been infringed upon. Another said, you know, Albertans were told at the start that restrictions would only be in place until a vaccine was developed and uptake was sufficient to prevent the ICUs from being overwhelmed. Nothing was said about protecting us beyond that. It is time to move on that from another real talker. I spoke to someone over the weekend. I would never identify her, uh, but uh, I, I have I, I can verify her employment, let's say, with Alberta Health Services. She schedules nurses at a major hospital. And I said, re- I, I talked to her. I said, hey, I just about said her name. I said, hey, we're talking on Monday morning. I will not identify her. And so I said to Loren, um, <laughs> no. Uh, I, I said, hey, we're talking about nurses wages on Monday. I was like, give me some like dish. Some of the like, what's going on? I said, do we have enough nurses? And she just looks at me. Do we have enough nurses? Because, of course, we don't have enough nurses. She said, but that's not the biggest problem. Of course, we don't have enough. She nurses? said, of course, we don't have enough nurses. Oh, talk to anybody in health. They'll tell you they don't have enough nurses. They don't have enough doctors. They don't have enough beds. They'll tell you that. She goes, of course, we don't. She said, but and this is a major Calgary hospital. She said, what's really concerning? She said, our ICUs are full. She said, the ERs are full. And she's like, and, and it's young people that are sick. She said, that's something that people need to be. She said, I don't know why people aren't talking about that. I said, well, we kind of are. She said, well, she said, I don't think you guys are talking about as much as you need to. Sick? Sick with what? Well, I mean, she didn't start showing me people's patient files. She was talking about how the Delta variant and how younger people are sick and it's wreaking havoc in hospitals. That was her message. Why are we dropping restrictions? We asked you. One of you said ongoing pressure from an estranged political base that may return in time for an election if all public health restrictions could be dropped. Another of you said maybe a need to begin a more expedient economic recovery in time for the 2023 election. Another one of you believes it's to create a case for privatization of certain types of medical services in response to rising COVID numbers. I mean, you know, Google Dr. Jack Mintz and private COVID test. Read up on that. We asked, who do you trust to give you information about COVID-19 right now? And the answer, doctors. I'm not going to read all the responses because they're all the same. Doctors. We appreciate those of you that have taken the time. I mean, we at a high level, sort of at a general level, go through these 20-page 
reports, these amazing top line reports that the team at Y Station puts together for us. If you want to see it in its entirety, we invite you to make a commitment. Believe it to be, relatively speaking, a modest commitment to the show every single month. It, we appreciate what you do to keep Real Talk going via our Patreon account. You can learn more at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you can find our question of the week for this week upcoming. Check this out. I don't know if anybody watched the closing ceremonies last night. Sure was a little. or the, It's probably called the closing ceremony, isn't it? Is it the ceremony? I always say ceremonies. The, the ceremonies. It's like daylight saving time, daylight it's savings, savings time. time. What it's do you It's like say? the Stanley Cup final, the Stanley Cup finals. Well, now that I'm put on the spot, I, I, I believe it should be called the closing ceremony, but it's probably called the closing ceremonies. If only we had like a worldwide web of information where we could just search this out and find out the proper phrasing. We've asked you, as another Olympic Games has come and gone, this one in Tokyo after a year-long delay. Did it weird you two out, by the way, that they were calling it Tokyo 2020 the whole time, or no? Yes. No and yes? No, didn't weird me Why out. not? It was, I mean, 2020 is, is on the Olympic cycle, and I think practically they did all the branding around Tokyo That's 2020. Probably and it. they didn't really want to redo it, so. That's got to be it. I, I think it just sort of, yeah. But it, it, it was, wasn't 2020. It was, it was the 2020 Olympics done in 2021. <laughs> and and I actually am very comfortable with that. <laughs> okay. I'm not. I was oh. like, uh, every time I was like, there's a typo. I had to go in. Like, yeah, it, it felt it, weird. It felt weird. every time. But I also know like they went into so much debt with this thing oh, that if they had to also do all the, redo all the hats and the shirts and the banners and the di- like. Sam, that's got to be it. I guarantee it. Yeah, it's got to be the merch because, because there's no way. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't. Anyway, not the point. Believe it or not, our question of the week is not about how you feel about 2020 versus 2021. Believe it or not, we're going deeper than that. Is it about the really ugly, ugly jackets that the Canadian team wore? <gasps> you watch your mouth, Sarah Hoyles. Are you talking about the denim jackets with the spray paint? I sure am. Those are incredible. What are you talking? Are you kidding me? Sarah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I thought those were. I love those. I mean, that's one half of a Canadian tuxedo. I felt like they should. I, I felt like they missed the mark on the white jeans. I, I felt like they should have worn blue jeans and I feel like they should have gone full Canadian tuxedo like denim denim up top and bottom. Now you're shaking your head. All right. I just I like I'm just it. really glad that I have surpassed my probationary period. Yeah. So now I'm like I'm full time here with real talk so I can say those things. It just means that we have to pay you severance now. That's all. <laughs> that's the only thing that changes. And we have a little you see that jar over there in the corner. That's the severance jar. <laughs> I, I drop like 40 bucks in there every week, just in case, just in case another Olympic games have come and gone. That, yeah, by the way, flew under the radar. Welcome past your probation. Thank y'all. 11,090 athletes in 33 sports came together to show the world feats of athleticism, the spirit of sport, and to determine who's the very best in the entire world. In this edition of the Get Real Question of the Week, we want to hear your take on the moments in this year's games, the relevance of the spectacle and understand how you feel about some of the events. Uh, we're expecting strong response to this one. We look forward to hearing from you. Some of the questions on purpose will make you feel uncomfortable. And we ask that you keep it real to give us a good sense on where you are with some of the uh, issues, some of the moments, some of the athletes and personalities that defined Tokyo 2020. One. one right at the top of the page at ryanjesperson.com the dairy queens at northwest edmonton and sherwood park we are uh so grateful for the leadership that they're showing 
through the month of August. And we were telling you about this last week as they launched this campaign. They've been looking for ways that they can put their money where their mouth is, so to speak. Uh, when, it, when it comes to reconciliation, you're going Dairy Queens and reconciliation. These are family-owned, locally-owned businesses. These are real people named Mark and Michelle and Michael that want to do everything that they can to support reconciliation in their own backyard, so to speak, in their own communities. And that's why they're partnering with the Wakutuin Society. It's a society that hosts annual retreats for Indigenous women who are survivors of cancer and survivors of Indian residential schools. And $1 from every ice cream cone sold for the entire month of August at these six Dairy Queens is going to the Wakutuin Society. So I ask you to consider taking your family, your friends, heck, your dogs. Dogs love soft ice cream, right? Oh, to the Dairy yeah. Queens at Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. Much respect from us to them. We also wanted to remind you the World Triathlon Championships are coming up in Edmonton. I mean, this is the next big thing, right? Like the Olympic Games are in the books. And now, I mean, some of these athletes that were there, the best in the world. And you might call them, although I think debate here, we, we got into it, decathlon versus triathlon. Who's the better athlete? We're splitting hairs at this point. These are the top. These are the top athletes in the entire world. And the 2021 World Triathlon Championship Finals are coming to Edmonton August 20th through 22nd. You can find all the details online, including how you can be there for free in fabulous spectator areas. They're observing all sensitivities around COVID. They want to make sure that everybody's safe. And so you'll see what we mean when you register for your free seating. And it's not too late to get involved from a volunteer standpoint. And there are many different levels of entry for competitors as well. 2021 is a big year, of course, for so many reasons. And a big one in the city of Edmonton is the World Triathlon Championship Finals. You can find it online at edmonton.triathlon.org. 2021 is also uh, a big year politically uh, for so many different reasons. And as we mentioned, coming up this week in a couple of days on Wednesday, August 11th, we expect to see hundreds, if not thousands of nurses demonstrating, protesting what is believed to be a plan to roll back nurses' wages. The finance minister, provincially, Travis Taves, has said as much. Uh, Dr. Michelle Morato has been keeping an eye on this developing story and sifting through a whole bunch of data. We're really excited to connect with the doctor and associate professor of sociology at the University of Alberta. Her research and teaching focuses on stratification, inequality, and social policy with an emphasis on data analysis and research methods. Dr. Morato, thanks so much for making time for us and welcome to real talk today thanks for having me here what's so significant about this wednesday about august 11th this demonstration by nurses does this mark them i mean sort of to to, to envision a journey or a hike i mean is this the first big river crossing hopefully i mean we'll see what happens in the end i mean it's an important day just to say okay Public sector workers in many ways in many ways are seeing the conservative government try and create wage rollbacks across sectors. Nurses are just the current ones that are being focused on right now. And we have to think a little bit about what's going on in this particular case and whether or not we should be actually having these wage rollbacks as well. So why do we get it? I mean, one of the reasons why I'm grateful that you're here, one of the reasons is that you've done a ton of, I mean, you've really dug into a lot of data 
uh, comparing and contrasting compensation and other factors on public health care workers, including nurses, uh, in jurisdictions across Canada, the provinces and the territories. The message from government, which is not necessarily inaccurate, is that Alberta's nurses are earning among the highest wages, if not the highest wages in the country. Is that accurate? So this is where we need to think about bigger picture when we're talking about statistics and numbers. And these come into play in various arguments and policy a lot, and they can have a lot of issues. So in this particular piece, the conservative government isn't wrong. So if we just look at nurses' wages on average in Alberta, they are at the top of the list across provinces. However, the thing we need to remember here is that Alberta is a rich province. So if we look at everyone's wages for all workers, they're also at the top as well. So one of the key things to think about in this case is context. So we need to think about uh, nurses' wages in relation to other workers within the provinces. And we also need to think about other healthcare workers as well. So if we were to say, okay, let's compare nurses' average hourly earnings to those of all the workers across provinces, Alberta is no longer at the top here. They're somewhere in the middle as well. So because Alberta is such a rich province, we see higher wages for nurses, but we see higher wages for everyone as well. Uh, Not necessarily everyone, but a lot of people compared to other provinces. So that's where we get those numbers where we can say, okay, nurses are making more in Alberta. And we have governments wanting to make the argument that, well, let's get those wages in line. Let's cut them down to other provinces. But we, what we need to consider here, though, is Alberta's a rich province across any of these wage arguments. And we want to consider that in relation to other people's wages as well. It's probably worth pointing out that Alberta's MLAs are the highest compensated in the country as well. I mean, I think that's probably a pretty solid direct comparison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we get into these tweets that you've sent out? Because I think this is good and it gives us a good jumping off point. So so you mentioned, you know, harassing public sector workers for being paid to do important work gets to you. You say you made a few graphs, uh, which we appreciate. And we'll show these for our audience members. We'll talk it through for people who are going to hear this on the podcast and we'll take a look for those that will see it on YouTube. You, you took a look at the May 2021 labor force survey. So this from just a few months ago. And it takes a look at mean hourly wages across the provinces, specifically for nurses. Can you take us into this first observation? You, you, you touched on the fact that Alberta is a rich province, but what do the numbers tell you when you compare or contrast salary or hourly wages between nurses in Alberta versus Ontario, B.C. or, or New Brunswick, for that matter? Okay, yeah. So these data come from the Citizens Canada's Labor Force Survey which is a great monthly survey that they do of a lot of workers across the country, asking them about things related to employment and earnings. So it's basically one of the places where we get some of the best recent employment data. So what we see here is data from May 2021, uh, some of the more recent data. And we're looking at hourly wages, so what people make per hour. And this is just for employed workers. So this is just for people who actually have earnings. If we included everyone, people not in the labor force and people not working, the numbers would be smaller. But what we see here, if we look across this graph, is this is just basically the average hourly wages by province um, ranged from highest to lowest. And what we see at the top is Alberta with people making on average about $33 per hour and a range um, going all the way down to New Brunswick at the bottom there. So this first thing is showing us that, well, Alberta had the highest mean hourly earnings across provinces for employed workers in May 2021. And this is pretty consistent across most months as well. 
Michelle, what I mean, if 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 I'm the health minister, if I'm tasked with getting a budget down or maybe flatlining a budget, let's say with no increases, I'll I know what my message is going to be. Right. And I'm going to look at this and I'm going to say Alberta's nurses mean hourly wages, thirty two, forty five an hour in B.C. It's almost a full two two dollars an hour less. And you're probably going to point out that if I'm living in, in, in you know, I mean, B.C.'s interior or in northern B.C., this is not the case. But if I'm a nurse in downtown Vancouver, the cost of living there is probably literally almost one and a half times, if not double the cost of living in Calgary or Edmonton or Red Deer or Lethbridge or Grand Prairie. So if I'm the health minister, I'm going to sit there and say Alberta's nurses, in my mind, can absorb a zero percent increase here. What might be the argument against that? What might be the argument for an increase that might reflect inflation or whatever the case may be? I mean, can, can what would be your, you know, hypothetically or otherwise, your response to that line of reasoning? Uh, well, so first, we do need to acknowledge that there's variation within provinces, as you mentioned. So where people live is going to matter. But we don't have the lowest cost of living here either, uh, especially within cities across the province as well. So it's really a hard argument to make to say that, well, we need to get them in line with other provinces. And we also just need to consider what we have in terms of wages for other workers as well and what those ratios are. So if we look at other provinces, um, so this is um, people in uh, this graph up here is people working in other types of health support occupations who are actually much more underpaid than nurses than doctors as well, and who are also going to be facing some uh, pay cuts too. And we can see differences here as well, um, where wages are much lower for this group. So there's variation in terms of some of the actual work people are doing within the healthcare sector and across provinces and within provinces as well. And we also need to remember that we are still living during a pandemic and we've been doing this for a year and a half now and nurses and healthcare workers have been doing so much. It's not a job that I would want to have right now. And people are burnt out, people are leaving and we don't have enough nurses right now. So one of the things you want to do if you think basic supply and demand arguments is you probably want to pay them more, actually, if you want to fill these positions, if we want to keep hospital beds open, if we want to make sure people have good care within the healthcare sector. I wonder if it's an almost an impossible conversation for us to have. Like if, I mean, you've just pointed this out in, in, in the graph that you showed about other healthcare workers, you know, workers that assist occupations in support of health, which could be any number of, of, of different uh, categories of employment or different jobs. Now, people that oftentimes I think get overlooked and they're totally underappreciated. Um, I, I know that when you talk about in, in Alberta, if you talk about healthcare laundry, uh, it can really set some people off. Laundry seems to be a file that a lot of people have paid close attention to as a as a potential area for privatization, et cetera, et cetera. But if we talk about people that are cleaning, if we talk about people providing security at hospitals, if we, and, and I'm going to forget a hundred different things that, that people that keep those hospitals going. Is it almost is, is it virtually impossible to have a conversation around healthcare wages? If you're talking about radiologists and orthopedic surgeons and general practitioners, family doctors, so to speak, nurses, uh, you know, paramedics and, and cleaning staff. I mean, is it is it virtually impossible to have a conversation about all of these jobs as one sort of entity? 
I don't think so. I think we can connect them together in a lot of different ways. They're all contributing to something bigger. And that's what we need to think about here. So everyone's doing a different type of job, but they're all contributing to the healthcare sector, to the health of people in Alberta, um, to helping sick people get better. And I think one of the things that happens here is we don't necessarily see those people who are behind the lines, who are doing the cleaning, who are um, keeping hospitals running at night in different times. We see the doctors, we see the nurses, but we don't necessarily see these other workers as well who are also doing important work. And I think some of that, that lack of visibility also contributes to the ability of governments of different hospitals, different places to pay these workers less because we don't necessarily see them as much. We don't necessarily see the work that we're doing. That's so important as well. How much of this, I'm asking for your opinion here. I know you're here to because you're, you're analyzing data. And so I'll leave it to you on how you want to answer the question. But how much of this with, with regards to, I think, I don't want to manifest this, but the conflict I'm expecting to see between nurses and the the provincial government, how much of do you, of it do you think, at least from the government standpoint, is going to be ideologically based? I mean, do you think that there's actually room for a conversation around the bargaining table about what nurses are bringing to the table and cost of living and retaining talent and attracting talent and all these types of things? Or do you think it's simply the fact that they're union and the fact that this government despises unions and essentially wants to bust unions? So I really hope there's room at the table for these types of arguments. And I think this is where public opinion really matters. This is why we need to be talking about this on new shows like this. We need to be talking about it on Twitter. We need to be talking about it with our families and friends. So on the case of governments versus unions, um, the government's going to take a very ideological standpoint. They want to cut the public sector. They want to decrease union power across all these different areas, not just healthcare. We're going to see it happening in education, too. We see it happening across various social services and public services. So on the one hand, we have this ideological argument, but public views still matter. So if we can have these conversations saying, okay, this work really matters. I went to a hospital and nurses really helped me. I see how these other workers are improving our lives and they're important for the healthcare of our province. That's going to be important in this case before before things get too late, before things get cut even more, before we lose even more workers than we already have, and we start to see even more declines in our healthcare sector. You're a you're a sociologist, like you're a professor of sociology. You understand. I mean, you study. It's a fact. I minored in sociology. You you study what makes people tick, and you study what influences societies and, and all kinds of fascinating angles. Uh, you're not just a statistician. Um, where's the public at right now? If you're to put your finger on the pulse, uh, where's the public at right now? I mean, if, if I'm if I'm representing nurses, I mean, this sounds like kind of a cold, almost like a, a crass thing to say. But if I'm negotiating a contract for nurses, I'm pretty happy at the timing of it right now that we're coming out of a pandemic. As a matter of fact, I might also wish that we were negotiating the contract mid pandemic while everybody's really keenly aware of what public health professionals are bringing to the table with regards to bargaining power that nurses have, whether it's strike, whether it's you know placards, whether it's lawn signs, whether it's mail outs, whatever it is, where do you think the public's at? right now with regards to its expectation of how government will handle these salary negotiations? 
I think we're at a good place right now where the public's more aware of these issues. And we just said we're aware of what the what healthcare does for us and how important nurses are, much more than we would have been before the pandemic. And we're definitely not at the end either. I would say we are still very much in the middle of this thing and it's going to get worse soon. So we're going to see the importance again of healthcare workers, of nurses, of doctors, of people who have been working so hard for the past year and a half. So I think they are in a good place with more public support, but we need to keep that going. We need to keep people talking about the issues. And that's why having rallies and protests and signs, as you mentioned, is so important. Dr. Michelle Morado is a, an associate professor of sociology at the University of Alberta. You can learn more about her work by following her on Twitter at Murado Michelle. We link, of course, to the handles of all of our guests from our official account at Real Talk RJ every morning. Sarah Hoyles does. And you can check out MichelleMurado.com. Thanks so much for your expertise this morning. We appreciate you shining a clear light, giving us a more clear understanding of what's going on here. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, doctor. Before we get into our next conversation, uh, we had mentioned Alta moving in storage earlier in our conversation around moving and, and in, in casual polling. We didn't we didn't even do an unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll. I think I'm, I'm just anecdotally taking a look at the live chat. Everybody agrees. Asking your friends to help you move is bunk. We're going to just officially declare that we're going to we're going to drop the stamp on that and call that file handled, as my buddy Jeff would say, handled. Why not handle your next move with the team at Alta Moving and Storage? Check this out. If you, if you look at our website, ryanjesperson.com, and then you just click on sponsors, these are the people that make this show happen. These are our builders, we call them. And if you scroll down, you'll be able to find the team at Alta Moving and Storage. You click right there. It'll take you right to their website, and you can get a free quote in minutes. They've got these pod-style moving containers that take all of the stress, or at least most of the stress, out of moving we control what we can right we control what we can if you need hired hands to help you with the move they can provide that too if you need shorter longer term storage that's their game you can find them online via the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com or at altastorage.ca and make sure you tell them that real talk sent you We've also got a moment here to remind you about the team at Westworld Computers. This show would not be happening without the hardware in studio, courtesy of Daryl and his team, family owned for more than 40 years. They've been providing sales and service solutions across the Apple lineup. They are your Apple experts. You can find out more about their offerings. They'll ship across Canada. Plus, book your service appointment today or walk right in and see them. You'll find them on Line at westworld.ca. How much do you know about the Indian Act? If I was asked that question right now, I might go, uh, what do you mean? But we talk about it all the time in Canada, don't we? It comes up in conversation, whether it's around reconciliation, whether we're residential schools, whether we're talking about indigenous sovereignty, whether we're talking about the role that First Nations should have or want to have or could have with regards to policy decisions. How much do we know collectively about the Indian Act? Bob Joseph is the national best-selling author of 21 Things You May Not Know 
about the Indian Act. He's the founder of Indigenous Corporate Training Incorporated and the Indigenous Relations Academy, which provides training on Indigenous and Aboriginal relations, has been doing so since 1994. It's an honor, Bob, to welcome you to the show. Thanks for making time for Real Talk today. No, thank you. This is uh, this is so great that you're uh, taking the time to do this. And my apologies for the mix up on the time zones. And, hey, Bob, uh, you know what? If you didn't even mention it, nobody would know. It's been nothing but smooth sailing this morning. We're just thrilled that we have you here. Thanks for making time for us. This book, can you can you give us a bit of background here? My understanding is like your book, uh, this this best selling book, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act actually started as an article, right? It, it was an article that really had some pretty strong uptake. Uh, what led you to write the article? And when did you know it was time to expand it into a book? Yeah, great question. Thank you. Um, so I started uh, blogging, you know, uh, most of the work that I do is actually with uh, all levels of government and, uh, you know, the, the Fortune 500 and lots of uh, big clients. Although we do train everybody, I always say, from from the Ontario SBCA to uh, the Fortune 100 and everything in between. Uh, but I thought, you know, we, we're getting such great feedback from those uh, sessions that it, I thought it wasn't it wasn't really um, sitting well with me that a lot of Canadians wouldn't have access to this kind of information without you know, having an employer willing to pay for training time. And so I started to blog as a way to reach a larger audience and uh, share hints and tips and things that I was learning in the training sessions that I've done with, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of learners. And um, as I was going through the blogging experience, I, I actually uh, had just read an article on how to be a better blogger. And it, and it said, people love lists. And if you want to, you know, increase your click-through rates and yeah. and uh, your read rates, uh, you know, come, come up with a list, make it seven to 10 uh, points and people will really gravitate to that. So I thought, well, what's, what's my list? And as I look back into the classroom setting, I thought, you know, I spend most of my time talking about the Indian Act, like the first half of the day, three hours, we just go through sort of Indian Act stuff. So I quickly typed out um, Indian Act, uh, you know, dates and important point things that I knew from experience had impact on people. And uh, when I, you know, I broke the rule right away. I went past uh, seven to ten and ended up on uh, twenty-one. But uh, but I'd uh, published that, and in the first month, over uh, fifty-five thousand people just from Facebook alone. Uh, not, never mind Twitter and LinkedIn and those those other uh, channels, as it were came to the website and that was sort of my epiphany. Well, maybe there's, you know, people are interested. I should expand on this, maybe, maybe a book. And so I reached out to some uh, book people and I said, Hey, I got this idea for a book. It's based on this blog post. They said, Bob, you know, we think you should publish because uh, most of the authors we get, they're great technical writers. They've got great stories. You know, there's lots of good things about them, but one of the things they never have is information on whether people will read their material. And you obviously are sitting in a different place. You know people will read this. We think it will do in bookstores what it has done you know, for you virally online, and we think you should publish. So based on that, we proceeded, and it's been on uh, bestseller lists for over uh, three years now, continues to uh, tick along and, and have lots of interest, which is great. So, well, I would, I would imagine with, with the current climate in Canada as well and, and the, the national conversation that people are having, um, that there's probably more interest now in your book than ever before. Can, can we treat it as um, 
tough love in a way uh, from your perspective that you couldn't do. You, you couldn't bring yourself to write the seven things you don't know about the Indian Act or the 10 things you don't know. You had to make the list a minimum of 21. What does that say about all of us? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think it just comes from uh, not so much tough love, you know, as a, as a trainer and instructor, I, I, I always try to create a safe space for people to learn and ask questions. People just don't know what they don't know. And I've heard that, uh, you know, a thousand times in my career. And so to, to uh, be able to share and to, you know, have people read and be interested and not not threatened, not guilted, not shamed. I mean, those are things they might feel anyways, but I would never certainly have that as an objective for sharing. And the uh, 21 things is just, uh, you know, me being generous. I thought I'm not going to stop at 21. I got to keep going here, try yeah. and get a, get a bigger picture. So, well, it's yeah. it's a remarkable uh, learning exercise and it's a great resource. Why, why don't we get into it? Can, can we kind of uh, approach this, Bob, uh, for the next number of moments, like, like uh, you know, Indian Act 101? First of all, can I acknowledge that it feels strange to be calling? I mean, that's what it's called. It is what it's called. Um, it certainly is time stamped, isn't it? W- with regards to what it's called, how did it come about? Can you provide us a bit of a background bef- before we really dig into it? Yeah, yeah. So way back at uh, Confederation, Canada was sort of wrestling with Indian policy, and um, what do we what do we do about it? They weren't fitting in militarily. They weren't fitting in economically. Um, they were having real problems with disease, high high levels of mortality from diseases that were were taking you know ninety percent of their population, uh, you know, just in a in a in a smallpox epidemic or an influenza epidemic, and so. What Canada saw at that time was this uh, dying race of people, and what we need to do is help them assimilate, at least the ones who make it. And uh, so we embark upon this uh, post-Confederation assimilation policy, and we, you know, it starts off, you know, in in that sort of direction, but as it's not being effective they're not assimilating we get more aggressive and we actually start to ban their languages and their cultures and their religious and spiritual beliefs and and uh you know by the 1920s we were just at our darkest point in history you know as a country where you know residential schools are in full swing and and so um we we really go at it in terms of that assimilation policy. It steams along until 1982, we patriate the constitution. We abandon forced cultural assimilation, but the, the real problem was we actually thought it was going to happen. Assimilation would happen. And Canada took on in 1867 underneath section 9124 of the British North America Act, um, a legal obligation to look after Indians and lands reserved for Indians um, until they assimilate. And so it's called a fiduciary duty. There's actually a legal obligation for Canada to deal with, you know, the Kasechewan water crisis and all of the things that we see happening in, in um, Canada today are really the responsibility of the federal government. So that's how it sort of uh, starts off. And I, I like your comments too about the timeliness of Indian and um, certainly, you know, if we were working for a company that had power lines or, you know, distribution lines on a reserve, then then we would have to use that language. It's very technical, legal language. Um, I myself would be personally hung up on that, though. I'd be like, uh, it's so great to so great to be talking to the nation. Uh, thanks to the nation for taking time. I'd be working to avoid it. Having, having said that, though, there, there's a lot of uh, Indigenous peoples who feel like they're Indian. And so people always ask me, what's the, Bob, what's the best terminology? And I always tell people, 
go with what they're calling themselves and you shouldn't have any problem at all. So if somebody comes along and says, hi, I'm Bob and I'm such and such an Indian, go with it. Uh, but if, you know, that I'm standing there and then Frank shows up and says, I'm, I'm Frank and I'm such and such a first nation, you know, what do you do in that situation? Right. And, yeah. Uh, and so I'll, I'll tell people, look, um, I would move away from First Nation or Indian because you don't have any chance of being successful in that little scenario. And I would go for more generic terms. Wow, it's so great to see so many communities represented here or so many nations represented. So just a little bit on that. Uh, Bob, this is like what 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 you're talking about now. And by the way, you have such can I just say this is a, maybe a bit of a strange thing to say to someone. You have such the aura, right? Like the vibe, the way that you talk. You you're you're a very accessible, like you you disarm people. I would imagine and this is probably maybe it's part of the way that you're wired but I feel like people like you with the knowledge that you have and your ability to communicate um, this is exactly what people need I mean you're providing even right now you're providing people with tools to better relate to and better understand other people and I think that I feel like that's more important now than ever do you get that sense too I mean do you feel like almost you're calling has 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 kind of become maybe even a little bit more significant than it already was well first of all thank you for all those kind words and uh yeah i really do this is uh totally a cause for me it's uh, you know mm. i'm very uh, blessed it's a successful business i i make tons and oodles of money and you know all, all great standards to uh, live up to but really this is uh you know, for, for me, uh, working with people to help them understand Indigenous peoples better is, is a total call. And it comes from my background. I'm actually a, a hereditary chief where I come from, the Kwakwakiwak here on northeastern Vancouver Island. I've got a, a seat in our house, as it were, and I'm just looking forward to an opportunity to do a potlatch to confirm it. I'm like a... I'm like the uh, the president who's been elected, but until inauguration, I don't get to occupy the White House. So I got to have one of these potlatches, which is impossible. You know, it's a it's a gathering of a thousand of the closest relatives in our big house, and and I have to do certain things and present gifts and do all kinds of really neat stuff. And what will that mean to you? What's that? What will that mean to you when it happens? Um, well, it's, uh, you know, uh, I think I lead off within the book, you know, uh, hereditary chief discussions and banning of potlatches. Um, you know, some of our people actually went to jail for giving gifts, you know, these poor people they are giving away everything. They're not leaving themselves anything. We've got to, we've got to help these poor people. That was sort of the rationale for, you know, banning religious spiritual practices. And, and so just on, on that, you know, for me, it's all about, uh, you know, honoring those people that had to go to jail, that lost their regalia, that <clears throat> couldn't do the uh, important work, <clears throat> pardon me, that needed to happen. And uh, so, you know, uh, very important to continue the work. Uh, I'm inheriting the chieftainship from my dad and, I'll, you know, pass it on to my son and, and uh, you know, we uh, we were called backwards cultures for for uh, giving giving away our wealth. The ultimate status symbol of a Kwakwakiwak hereditary chief is to give away everything you have and just have the the shirt on your back and the house you live in. <clears throat> Pardon me, sorry about that. Um, and um, so that. That obviously went against the values of uh, you know the people that running were running Indian policy at the time. Uh, but for us, it's our it's our political system too. You know, I give away gifts. 
you accept my gifts. You're accepting that what I say is is right. And I and I also am earning the right to speak for you. Look, I'm not gathering this wealth so I can sit on some, top of some big mound and and say, look at me, I'm 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 so great. Uh, people realize that if I'm if I'm amassing wealth, which is important to us, um, but I'm distributing wealth, which is actually more important. That's what they look for. And uh, so to distribute the wealth is our you know, that's our political system. I'm not here for my own personal gain. I'm here for you, the community, Ryan, and, and that, that's why I'm distributing. So we would uh, totally have a toe-to-toe with people on political systems and, you know, which one is better. But, Bob, I, I don't, so. I don't, uh, I mean, I want to sort of, we won't go through all 21 points and we want to leave room for people to buy the book. Uh, but I do think that, I mean, if I can just read through some of the points you make from the list of 21 I think that this is going to hit some people like a slap to the face uh, when you when you talk about major elements that that non-indigenous people maybe don't understand about this legal document, the Indian Act. I mean, it denied women's status. It introduced residential schools. It renamed individuals with European names. It restricted First Nations from leaving reserves without permission from a so-called Indian agent. It forbade First Nations from forming political organizations. It prohibited the sale of alcohol and ammunition to First Nations. It forbade First Nations from speaking their native language, from practicing their traditional religion, from appearing in any public dance, show, exhibition, stampede, or pageant, wearing any traditional regalia. It denied First Nations the right to vote. I mean, people are going to be reading this going, huh? This is not some sort of historic document that somebody found in a cave and blew the dust off. This is policy. Yeah, yeah, I think it is a, a real eye opener for people to uh, start to uh, deep dive that. You know, if this were the the Matrix, I'd be a little bit like Morpheus. Take the red pill and everything stays the same. Take the blue pill and we'll show you how deep the rabbit hole really goes. You might be opening a dangerous door for us right now. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, but it, it does, you know, and I think once we, once people read that, and I don't really try to jump to conclusions for people, they do, uh, what I hear the most is they do start to, um, you know, make connections to thoughts and ideas that they have, right? Oh, they, they were, they were lazy. Why don't they just pick themselves up and pull up their bootstraps like everybody else? And, and then you read that they weren't able to sell, barter, exchange, give or otherwise dispose of cattle or other animals or grain or hay, you know, in the three, three agricultural provinces of this country, you start to realize, oh, okay, oh, they don't own the houses they live in. They don't own the land they live on. It's merely set aside on these things called reserves and reserves are uh, basically a holding pen, a place where they were going to go until they assimilate. And so once people start to, uh, you know, read through um, obviously more than 21 things and hopefully they get really curious, they start to see, ah, okay, this is why I see this. And this is why I see that. And here's why, you know, what, one of my favorite ones is, um, you know, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Or, or hi, I'm here from this company and I'm here to help. And I always tell people, don't say that ever, because that's what Indian Affairs was saying for over 140 years. We're here from the government and we're here to help. And nothing they've done has actually been helpful. They are not self-determining. They're not self-reliant and they're not self-governing. It's all governed by the Indian Act. And if we would give them that chance and we see some good examples, um, they will, you know, they will do things that Canadians expect. They will, you know, 
be competitive and in the marketplace and and all, all of those kinds of good things. So well, I think we've uh, spoken with so yeah. many uh, indigenous uh, community leaders on the show. Uh, I think of Chief Billy Morin uh, as one here in Alberta that's I mean has such a bold vision. Um, for what, uh, you know, sort of the economic landscape could look like economic participation, let me say. And we know that there's uh, such a demand for so many more of those uh, conversations, and I think an appetite for so many more of those initiatives. Um, when you talk about the Indian Act, a lot of people will simply say it's time to abolish the Indian Act. And I've seen that on placards at demonstrations and signs. There's a really interesting uh, op-ed that ran just before about a week before the most recent federal election. I'm not sure if you read it, but Pam Palmatier wrote it in McLean's. And she argues that abolishing the Indian Act means eliminating First Nations rights. And she goes on to argue that she thinks that if it were to be abolished hastily, that it could prove to have negative or detrimental effects on indigenous people in Canada. Where do you land on that? How do you feel about the idea of abolishing the Indian Act? Yeah, <clears throat> I'm a I'm a fan. It's got to go. It, there's just uh, no question. And um, you know, I, I look at uh, agreements like the the Niska Treaty, for example, with um, the Niska Nation Royal Assent Canadian Parliament 2000. Um, it, it got rid of uh, the Indian Act. There's no more status uh, Indians. There's no more band councils. There's you know they're they're self reliant. It was a you know, I think it was 198 million in cash and some lands and resources, and uh, it was all codified in a treaty. So what I see is the exact opposite of that. I see a big bundle of rights that were acquired through negotiations with federal and provincial governments. I also see that it is, um, at least in my view, working because we hear nothing about the Niska Treaty. What we hear about are the bands that are having trouble with the Indian Act. And um, so that, you know, I, I look at that and I'm, I'm not promoting the Niska Treaty. I'm just saying, look, here, there is a way we can we can look at the treaty as a, 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 the common elements that federal and provincial governments would be willing to negotiate on self-determination, self-government and self-reliance. And yeah. there is places where it actually works and it's cheaper for Canadians and taxpayers and and um, the other the other analogy I like to share is, um, you know, we're you know, what, what, what about those communities that are remote and northern and the Indian Act really is the only game in town. We have to leave it and by taking it away, it'll, we'll make it worse. And and, um, you know, the, the reason that those they're in that situation is because of the Indian Act. That, that That's really why they're there. So I try to share with people a. A triage doctor analogy. Your triage doctor. Somebody comes in at two o'clock in the morning. They've got a bullet lodged in their chest, and you know the the doctor will have to decide: do we leave the bullet in or do we take the bullet out? And you know, if it looks like Ryan will live if we pull the bullet out, then we pull the bullet out. And, but there there have been cases where doctors have said, you know what? It's better if we leave it in here. He's got a better survivability if we leave the bullet in. And um, so there may be that situation for a triage doctor, but with the Indian Act, it is trolling people off of the list. Does that make sense? That's what it's designed to do. It's designed to get rid of Indians, to make them 
take them from status to non-status Indians. And even though we're not forcibly culturally assimilated anymore, we're seeing the numbers of people leave the reserve, they're ending up in urban centers, that continues to grow. And we're seeing uh, less status Indians and you know less funding to go around for the ones that are there. I mean, it's it's one of those ones where if you're a triage doctor, you'd say, well, we got it, but it just has to come out. It's, it's probably going to kill this patient. And so that that sort of uh, some of the thought process that I have around the Indian Act. And, and I think, uh, like I say, there's plenty of models out there that show that communities can exist. The NISCAR are, are remote. They're north. It's, you know, pretty hard to, uh, to, uh, to uh, get there. Um, and so, um, and they still have rights to fish and hunt and, you know, they're, they're actually in the space of tax, which is better than in the space of handouts. So if I cut down trees on Niska lands today, stumpage fees that would normally go to the province go to the Niska nation. So um, I think in some ways their rights have really been greatly enhanced uh, by removal of the Indian Act. And, and like I say, um, they're, they're a model that is, uh, I think, working because we hear almost nothing about them. We, we do hear about Kaseshuan and Atawapiskat and, and at the heart of those is the Indian Act. You you you've you've just argued a great point, uh, which is that and, and we've heard it in different contexts. Um, I, I think I think of, you know, for, you know, the, we had a, a wonderful conversation with the chief of the Calasis First Nation talking about sovereignty when it comes to child and family services. And um, and, and we've had it reiterated time and time again on this show uh, from community leaders who have said there's not one size fits all solution. You can't you can't just say indigenous people in Canada or First Nations in Canada. You can't just say that like what works in northern B.C. doesn't work in southern Saskatchewan, doesn't work in northern Manitoba. Um, I want to go back to this this piece in McLean's from 2019. Pam Palmentier, she 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 writes it's long past time that Canada stopped acting as the savior of the Indians. And you've talked about that, that here to help idea, right? She mm-hmm. says, and, he, and here's what I want to ask you about. She argues a respectful path forward will mean skipping national Aboriginal organizations like the Assembly of First Nations who are effectively co-opted by federal funding and instead to negotiate directly with actual rights bearing First Nation governments. Let First Nations decide the way forward and accept that one size fits all will not work. Would you agree with that? I like her thinking. And Pam Pam is obviously a really intelligent yeah. woman, and I have a lot of respect for her. Um, I think, um, you know, I'll put it into context. And, you know, uh, I know you're in Alberta, and, uh, you know, we could talk about something like uh, the Coastal Gas Link uh, project and, you know, hereditary chiefs and elected chiefs. Remember the elected chiefs? Um, come out of the uh, Indian Act. And uh, we said, hey, Bob, the way you're governing yourself, that's wrong. It's backwards. You need to elect the chief and council. And so we put these chiefs and councils into place. And you're allowed a chief and council for every 100 members. You got 205 members, one chief, one council member. You're elected by your people, but you're accountable to Indian affairs, not to your people, to Indian affairs. And, And that's where she's really, I think, on point where, you know, if you're getting federal funding for something, you're not going to be as vocal as you can be and uh, should be in some cases. And um, it puts you in a, a really awkward position. So when I think about 
coastal gas link, you know, some of the messaging that you saw um, around the, the Wet'suwet'en sort of protests and blockades was, uh, especially from government, we have signed agreements with all of the elected councils all along the, all along the pipeline. And so people are like, well, that's, that's got to count for something, right? And, but when we take a look at uh, where British Columbia is and where Canada is, we just, we've got CANDRIPA now, the Canadian United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And, and in that, in those documents, um, in the United Nations Declaration, it says that we're supposed to get their free, prior, and informed consent to do stuff like coastal gas link. And so when we look at it in the, in the context of Canadian history, can the government of Canada create something, a banned council, and then go to it for decisions on what it wants to do? And we're in the view of... You know the declaration. No, they're 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 not free of outside influence. They're not free of coercion. Matthew Cooncombe, a really great uh, fiery creed leader, uh, took on the helm at uh, at the Assembly of First Nations National Chiefs. The whole platform was right. I'm going to go after the feds. We're going to take them on. We're going to make change. And and we loved them. He was like, awesome, man. This is this is what we need to happen. And when he joined. You know, when he took on the national chief of the Assembly First Nation, I think the budget was $36 million. By the time he left three years later, it, was down, it got chopped down to $7 million. And so I think Pam's on point, you know, that we don't, we don't need to talk to those. They're, they, they're often referred as national indigenous organizations. What she's encouraging is we go talk to the rights holders, all of those distinct, you know, 600, over 600 First Nations with... Uh, you know, tribal councils and, you know, 11 major language families, 50 different dialects that they, they would actually, if you want to talk about climate change, why would you, why would you meet with these, these, uh, these groups when the people that are going to be impacted by climate change, that's, that's where we should be spending the time. And I think that's what she's saying there. You know, Bob, though, I, I, uh, to be real, I, I don't quite know how to ask you this question. I, I only know that I have kind of a premise and so I'll try to work it out uh, with you. Uh, I forgot, I forgot to say, you know, you, if, if you're worried about how your question might sound, and I say this to all of our learners, you can always throw a, what do you say to those people that say this? <laughs> yeah, the, the, t- <laughs> tried test it. This is when I interview politicians. I say, what do you say to people that call you an idiot? Uh, that's my way of, yeah. What do you, how do you okay, respond what, to the, yeah. Um, <laughs> here's what I would say. Uh, I might be, but it's still your problem. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But Bob, like, let, let's talk about Coastal Gaslink or let's talk about Northern Gateway or let's talk about, uh, you know, I, maybe not. I don't want to bring the Americans into this Keystone XL, but I mean, you know, you, you look at all these these pipelines and and um, some of the national conversations and the railway blockades and and the the. Um, the I think the lack of understanding and maybe the the, um, the sincere questions that people have had about elected versus hereditary chiefs and it all of course became more and more relevant over the past year or two ago, including like you said, I mean these protests that you've named and these very real issues that you've named, and I I think about you know people that talk about and I've seen this this uh, this assertion made many times, uh, most especially from politicians but also from civilians that say these days and they sort of say it in a way that that i'm not sure they realize how hypercharged and super loaded the statement is but they say these days you'd never be able to build a national railroad and then then it gets kind of gets people thinking actually about how the national railroad was built and i think you'd have a lot of people saying thank god we have it but a lot of other people would be saying at what cost 
and how many Canadians have actually reached a full understanding of how that railway was built and by whom and at what cost. And you'll have that same argument come up where people will say, well, we'll never be able to build another pipeline in Canada. And there are many politicians that are on the record saying exactly that in the context of First Nations and in the context of whom you believe should be consulted and how that process should work. How would you respond to those types of comments? You'd never be able to build a national railway or you'd never be able to build another pipeline these days. Yeah, um, I think. You know, when we get into uh, the duty to consult, pardon me, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, the, you know, we think about the duty to consult in 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 uh, Canadian case law. Supreme Court of Canada has said that the the uh, Indigenous peoples can't veto the convert. You know, they can't veto consultation. They can't veto projects. So it doesn't confer a veto. So legally and by rights, these things should be able to uh, move forward. Um, the problem is, and, and governments will say that, Ryan, if you came here with a billion dollars and you said, I want to build a pipeline, the, the Crown would say, oh, great, Ryan, that's awesome. We want you to build the pipeline and, and don't worry about those First Nations. They can't, they can't veto consultation. Um, often, though, what they're not telling you is that they can't veto but um, if the consultation isn't done in a meaningful and adequate way, so the courts are looking at meaningfulness and adequacy of consultation. Um, if it's not done in a meaningful and adequate way, the First Nations have a right to call for a judicial review. And all a judicial review is they're asking the judges to look at the Crown's adequate and meaningful consultation to make sure they didn't miss anything, like the whales on the TMX project, right? Mm -hmm. We. And they go through every email, every text message, every meeting node, you know, and and that takes like three to five years. And so on the one hand, we're saying, Ryan, don't worry about it. We can't veto your, they can't veto your project. But on the other hand, they're not telling you, you're going to have to stretch it out another three to five years while the judicial review rolls out, you know, if we don't do the consultation appropriately. And we know they're not having much success because there's over 160 different consultation cases. And, and, um, in fact, when we look at TMX, I mean, the, the prime minister had to buy the TMX project, literally having to save the Canadian economy because we, we didn't understand this notion that they can't veto, but they can certainly ask for a, a judicial review. And, you know, it's so bad that, you, you know, you feel like you have to you have to buy a new crown corporation and, um, you know, just to uh, save the economy. And by saving the economy, Ryan's sitting there going, can, can they actually get anything done in Canada? Gosh, this is like crazy. I mean, what's taking so long? And, and it's, a lot of it's uh, in the background are these sort of legal challenges and judicial reviews. And I always just tell people, look, you can build stuff, if, but if you go a legal route, that, those are, that's likely what's going to happen. The bigger the project, the more likely a, a judicial review. And uh, if, especially if the you know, if we're not really doing anything to help the First Nations interests, because they've said it a lot of times, we're not against development, but it can't be development at all costs. And and if there is going to be development in our territories, then we want to participate in that in that wealth generation. And so if we take a different approach, and this is what I talk about and why I think we do really well on the training side, is that if we involve them, if we help, if, if we go to them and say, you know, under what conditions could we build this um, pipeline, for example, and then start to work with it on that basis? We never have to worry about the legal stuff. And it's all about relationship building at that point. We go involve them. They've got to say, they've got to have a say. 
Um, and um, I think, you know, going down that road is a, is a much better road. It's a, when I talk to my corporate developers, it's a risk management road. You're, you're making a good decision. You don't have to do this. Not, I, I Look, uh, Ryan, I think you're going to have to do employment. You're going to have to do procurement, probably going to have to pay some kind of reconciliation agreement settlement. And you're going to say, oh, Bob, that's crazy. I don't do that for anybody else. Why would I do that for them? Just not understanding what's going on around you. And I'll say, look, I get it. But let's say they do the judicial review. Let's say your project's a $400 million project. And if you miss your completion date, May 2025, you know, what are your, what are your missed you know, development project timelines costing you? Now you're into $5 million a month, right? So $5 million a month beyond... May 2025, if they do a judicial review, let's say their lawyers are really lousy, they can only stretch it out for three years. That's 36 months times 5 million a month. That's 180 million in project delay fees plus legal charges and finance charges. So you're easily on the hook for $200 million where, you know, if we were talking privately in a room, I'd say, Ryan, I, I would say, go, you know, go, go with $50 million and see if you can work out something ahead of time. And there's actually lots of companies that do this. They fly below the radar. We never read about them in the paper because they figured out, okay, one way is ostensibly a, a legal route. The other way is we're going to go and work it out with them. They have legal interests. We have to treat them like we do our farmers when we're taking away their land. We have to take, take, deal with them like our, you know, and that, so it's just sort of this, uh, this ideology of indigenous relations that you can create your own economic certainty. Can, and there's lots of good examples. Can you, you see about, that uh, Bob, sorry to step on your toes for a second, but can you see that actually opening the door for more equity partnerships, more equity negotiations? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the neat thing, Ryan is when they've got an equity position, guess what they're not doing anymore. Fighting blockading it. the railroad, yeah. blockading the ports. You know what they're saying, Ryan? Where's our dividends? How come it's taking you so long? Why are you missing your development lines? It just totally, it's like a parallel world that's running side by side. But most people, you know, go follow the, the legal tangent. Don't worry, they, they can't veto and uh, everything's going to be okay. No, it's mm. not. There's, there's things that you should be thinking about. And if you're not, you're going to stumble right in. And, I, you know, I'd say, you know, I've, I've had fights with purchasing guys. Look, I can, I can buy this, I can buy this thing for a dollar. Why would I pay them too? You know, you're going to pay $2 for a widget. It's going to cost you 10 million instead of 5 million. Uh, but rather than pay the 10 million, I'd rather pay the 200 million in finance charges and, and project delay fees. Right. So, you know, I'm like, don't listen to your purchasing guy. You need to you need to go do stuff differently than you. You just need to understand what's going on here so you can make better decisions. And this is and, why uh, people so. uh, this is why people consult with cultural sensitivity trainers like you, Bob. Uh, let me ask you this. And I've and I've been the question has has been coming up more and more frequently on my part asking guests and it will uh, increase in frequency uh, once the federal election is called. But people will soon have candidates for elected office knocking on their doors, uh, mm -hmm. campaigning for votes uh, in the context of this and, and bringing this conversation full circle back to the Indian Act and what reconciliation looks like and what role government should play. Can you give us a focused question? that you'd like to see people ask candidates for elected office at their front doors or at town hall forums or what have you? I love it. And thank you. This, I mean, you know, the, my only question is what are you going to do about the Indian act hmm. or when are you going to get rid of the Indian act? That, that would be, 
that would be fabulous. And to do opinion ed, you know, op-ed pieces and come to shows like yours. And, and those are the, the kinds of things that I think um, will make such a huge difference. Uh, you know, when I think about, um, you, you know, the Indian Act and getting rid of it and how much it costs to maintain that system. And, you know, years ago, uh, way back in the early days of UC, um, you know, one of the big daily papers ran an article, you know, Indian land claims could cost taxpayers $10 billion. And there was a pretty big outrage about it. It was in 1995, October, front page, the whole front page too. And and so, uh, you know, people would say, Bob, what do you think about that? That's a lot of money. I mean, you know, there's deficit debt, the economy's in the tailspin, we're coming out of pandemic. I mean, there's lots of reasons to to not spend money. And I, I said to people, look, you know, it's a good article. It's talking to you, the taxpayer, about the cost of change. You need to think about this because you've got to make some tough choices. Um, but if we if we don't want to do it, then we keep the Indian Act going. And I think the budget's somewhere in the nine to eleven billion dollar range in Ottawa right now. Um, you know, BC would see probably about eight hundred to a billion dollars in federal funding transfers. Um, and so that is a cost of not changing, about a billion dollars a year. Let's just round it up. Um, there was a reputable accounting firm from PricewaterhouseCoopers in that year or in that time frame, maybe not that year, uh, did an economic impact of land claims or hereditary chiefs on, on the economy. And we were losing a billion dollars a year of direct investment, plus 1,500 jobs just in forestry and mining, because these Indian Act issues were largely unresolved. And uh, and then, of course, we could walk away from the treaty process. I think we spent $1.4 billion, you know, hey, vote for me and I'll kill the treaty process. Anybody can do that. And, you know, but you, you'll have wasted $1.4 billion. And of course, there's the money that we're spending to fight these court cases. And those are substantial in the hundreds of millions of dollars every year to fight, you know, rights and title cases in the Supreme Court of Canada. And those are all costs that the Canadian taxpayer funds while we leave the Indian Act in place, while we avoid moving to self-determination, self-government and self-reliance. And, and so, you know, when people were asking me the question about $10 billion, I was saying, yeah, $10 billion is a lot of money. I can't imagine what it would look like one tuny stacked up on top of the other, but you know, from my perspective, a billion dollars in federal funding transfers, a billion dollars of direct investment lost, um, I think we could self-finance a $10 billion treaty process in five years. I'm not a mathematician, but it's in five years, you'll start to receive a return on investment. And I think that's a better place for you to be as a taxpayer, I'm just saying. Or you can leave things the way they are. Do nothing about the Indian Act, and it'll just keep doing what it does. And we'll be where we are. That's just how it's going to work. And so, um, yeah. And I think even uh, Dalton McGinty, you know, depending on the politician, right? So you have these guys that like to spend too much, and then you have guys that, you know, uh, we're not going to spend anything. We're, you know, we're fiscally irresponsible and... And so I've seen the effects of both policies. Let's say we decide we're going to do more with less. That would be the mantra of, say, somebody that wants to save money and not spend so much on government, which is a fair prerogative, right? Um, the problem is, so Ottawa stops spending money fixing the Kasechuans and the Attawapiskats and all of the other problems that they're dealing with on the India Act sort of file. Um, they stop spending the money. That doesn't mean the problem goes away, though, right? That means the problem gets pushed out to Alberta. Now, now we're going to have people leaving the reserve in Alberta. They're going to go to Calgary, to Edmonton, to Vancouver, to Victoria. There's going to be more crime. There's going to be more homelessness. There's going to be all of these other problems. So 
less funding towards the Indian Act isn't a solution. It actually is an offloading of a problem from one level of government to a bunch of other levels. There's going to have to be more policing. And so to get people to think more broadly about Indian policy in this country. And I think if they saw some of that, they would, and Premier Dalton McGinty sort of pointed it out in, in Kaseshwan, they showed up at his office and he called the national press conference. And in that conference, he said, we're really good people here in Ontario. We're going to help the Kaseshwan out in their time of need. But by the same token, we do not want other governments offloading their responsibilities onto us. I was like, right on, man. I mean, who's this McGinty person? Wow, that is just so where we need to be in terms of the thinking. He was seeing it. They, they were cutting back in Ottawa. Now it's becoming a problem here. Like if you want to do resource development, don't cut back funding in Ottawa. I mean, there's just a relationship there. Less funding puts pressure on the people with less funding to find more ways to get more funding. And that could be blockades and legal challenges and all of the stuff that, you know, we, we see happening. So just to, for Canadians to really just grasp that and for politicians to, you know, be asked, what are you going to do about it? And yeah. don't, please don't tell me less funding. Look for ways for, you know, self-determination, self-government and self-reliance. And let me just put, let me just add to that, that I, that, that I think that people should expect real answers and not platitudes, uh, policy, real answers, a plan. Uh, Bob Joseph is the national bestselling author of 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. He's the founder of Indigenous Corporate Training Incorporated and Indigenous Relations Academy. You can learn more at ictinc.com. CA. Can't thank you enough for this perspective, Bob. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Real talkers, I know that for a lot of you, you've got immediate opinions on this, an immediate response. I'm seeing some 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 great chatter on the live chat to be honest i haven't spent much i've just been present with bob just like listening to what he has to say but i know that many of you have thoughts on this and and if you're like me in some circumstances and this is one of them you're going to take some time to think about what you've heard and that's why our email inbox is always open to you talk at ryanjesperson.com we invite your comments i have no doubt we're going to receive some some thoughtful uh, some evidence that you're, you're sorting through this in your own mind and whether you are an indigenous person, a non-indigenous person, no matter where you're coming to us from, uh, we'd love to know what you think about some of this stuff. We endeavor to get beyond the headlines on this show and to start digging into issues that are of interest. You know, sometimes people will say, Jespo, how does it how does it work with Sarah? And you guys put the show together and how, how do you come up with what you're going to talk about? And I say to people, I say, sometimes it's what people are talking about. I mean, the, the formula is not not exactly uh, complex. You know, sometimes we want to focus on what people are talking about. We let off this morning on sidewalk chalk what people are talking about. And sometimes the most important conversations are what people are not talking about. And I think that this along those lines certainly qualifies. And what great insight there from Bob. We want to remind you that the team at Local Waste, they proved it again on Friday. They love to talk trash. A reminder, by the way, if you subscribe to our podcast, Trash Talk will hit you every Saturday as a separate, just a, a little treat. I was going to say about four minutes, but I know Sam would roll his eyes. They're usually about six. What's, do we have that sounds a, about right. Do you know what, what's our longest trash talk of all time? Is it like seven minutes? Probably seven, or we could have even been pushing eight minutes. It's I'm a, not entirely sure. That's a long time yeah. to sustain 
that level of enthusiasm. I think it was one of those pre-long weekend ones, so you could just like eat oh, yeah. lozenges for three days I afterwards. Think that, yeah, yeah. You, you must be right. Honey and lemon tea and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so if you subscribe to our podcast, you'll get real talk coming at you every day. Plus on Saturday, the bonus trash talk will land there for you for your entertainment. It's a great way to find out what's really irking your fellow real talkers. You can send us an email anytime. Keep it labeled as trash talk it's where local waste stepped up right out of the gates and of course they're big on keeping it local their whole business construction commercial and residential waste and recycling collection they're operating right now in alberta and saskatchewan and always looking to expand if you're an entrepreneur and you see an opportunity in your community why not get in touch with mikhail lauren or chris you can give them a call anytime at 780-809-5013 or of course you can find them online at localwaste.ca if you're looking for a truck to haul that trailer, if you're looking for a Jeep to get out into the great outdoors, Jeep has been trusted since 1941, and nobody has better selection than the teams at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge Jeep. They share their inventories, so at times right now where selection is tough, we're hearing from people saying, you know, the dealerships, dealerships are calling me. I, 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 I believe I've never had such good value on my gently used vehicle. Demand is up right now. Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge has you covered with the best new and used selection in the province. They share their inventories and you can find them online by linking via our website, the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. That's also where you'll find the team at Eden Landscaping. You can go to them directly at landscapeedmonton.ca. If you click on services, you'll see some of the services they've been providing for customers for more than 20 years, including edible garden boxes. These are very on trend right now, as they say. If you've got to remove some existing greenery or you're looking to level your ground, they do excavation plus hardscapes, beautiful stonework. Look at the retaining walls they're able to do, whether it's decorative or functional. It is their business. And of course, who couldn't appreciate a water feature, a fountain or a pond, maybe in your back or front yard. They'll tell you if it's a good fit and let you know what you need to make sure that it's a successful installation. They take you from design to implementation. Eden Landscaping at landscapeedmonton.ca. Now, I apologize in advance for anybody that's not yet had lunch. Anybody that skipped breakfast, this is going to annoy you for sure because the team at Friesen Brothers right now knows that when I start talking about hatch chilies, your mouth is going to start watering. They call it the champagne of all chilies, fresh from Hatch, New Mexico. These are mild, flavorful peppers, a great substitute for any recipe calling for bell peppers. You can throw hatch chilies on your burgers. You can char them on the barbecue, maybe add them to your salad. Salad? Yes, salad. Friesen Brothers also has their famous hatch chili hummus. They've got the take and bake hatch chili father dough to go pizza. You can come see them for yourself at Friesen Brothers across Alberta, 16 locations, Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Also want to remind you how proud we are to partner with the team at Kubi Energy. It was last week, last Tuesday, that we announced that the Winifred Stewart Association, by way of Joey's home, would be receiving that solar installation, the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest winners, thanks to you, the hundreds of you that voted for them via our question of the week last week. Kubi Energy was the driving force behind that, obviously. They're covering all the costs so that the Winifred Stewart Association will have free, clean energy for the next 30 years. 
they can help you achieve that exact same outcome. Whether it's commercial, residential, or industrial, Kubi Energy hard at work across Western Canada right now, based out of Kamloops, BC, and of course, Edmonton, Alberta. Each and every Monday or Tuesday on the heels of a long weekend, the team at Kubi Energy gets our week started off on the right foot with a optimistic look at the days ahead and what's inspiring real talkers. These, of course, are messages submitted by you to us, a little something we call positive reflections. I have to read you a text that I got from Jake Kubiski. This is fantastic. Jake is, of course, the founding CEO of Kubi Energy, who presents Positive Reflections. He texted me on Friday and he says, the community is real. I said, what do you mean? He says, I just had a fella roll down his window at a traffic light, waving at me intensely. So I roll down my window. He points to his real talk snapback cap. He gives me a huge thumbs up and he takes off. Jake says high fives all around. You see what's happening here? You rep your Real Talk lid. You have your Real Talk RJ hashtag vinyl sticker that you found on the merch link at ryanjesperson.com. And Real Talkers are connecting, including with our partners at Kubi Energy. Jake got such a kick out of that and so did I. So whoever you are, anonymous Real Talker with the snapback cap, Thank you, and thanks for showing some love to our partners at Kubi Energy. We also loved this email that we got from Paul. Paul wrote in and said, Hey, Real Talkers, I spent the weekend surrounded by family for the first time in what feels like forever. Technically, for the first time in about a year and a half. I held my niece in my arms for the first time ever. She's closing in on two years old. Her older sister was thrilled to show me what she's learned lately, including spelling her name and reciting facts about the solar system and and, and explaining to me how they get honey from bees. My parents watched it all happen in their family room, which has sat empty for months and months and months. One of them is immunocompromised, so they've been extra careful like all of us have. And even now with things starting to open up again, I can see the toll that this has taken on them. I'm writing to tell you all that my heart is full. I'm thankful for this weekend, for family, for science, and for each and every one of you that made tough decisions, that missed major milestones, that compromised your grandest plans so that one day we could be here, optimistic and open to returning back to what we once knew. I know we're not totally out of the woods, and I know that our work is not done, but I wanted Real Talkers to know how much I appreciate you. And I wanted you to know I'll keep doing my part to ensure you too can enjoy weekends like I just did. That from Paul. You can submit your positive reflections to us 24 hours a day by sending us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you clearly label it so we notice it and set it aside for next week's positive reflections presented by Kubi Energy. Make it a great week, friends. Tomorrow's show is shaping up to be a good one. Sarah Hoyles is going to take us into an understanding of how much syphilis there really is in Alberta. You got (laughs) it. Yeah, do I knew. Hey, this falls into what people are talking about. Mm -hmm. What people are talking about. Plus, five years since Colton Bushy's death on a farm in Saskatchewan. Where's his family at? 
We'll talk to their lawyer, Eleanor Sunchild. That and more on Tuesday's Real Talk. In the meantime, make it a great Monday, and we'll see you soon.